The views and opinions expressed on Red Planet are those of the individual and do not necessarily reflect those of Red Planet nor any affiliated or related entities. This podcast is provided for educational purposes only. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to Red Planet. This week, we're joined by Anansi of Anansi's Library to talk about their recent work researching the Ethiopian Revolution of 1974 and some of the lessons we can take away from it. Also, genocide in Gaza, major healthcare strikes in the United States, and game developers are unionizing in Poland. But first, Mule believes Hollywood has gone too far this time. And I remember being there in the cinema, we were watching the Barbie movie, me and my partner, and this trailer comes on for this movie, and I just can't believe that they're making this a movie, but it's the GameStop thing. It's it's the GameStop guys... They <gasps> about how they invested and, and they did, and it's the whole. They're making a fucking movie about a Reddit thing, like Wall Street bets. I was losing my mind. I was saying, who are these people? Why are they doing it? How could they possibly make a movie about this? Uh, it just seems like the worst thing of all time. And obviously, uh... like you know, liberals are watching it and they're going, "Wow, this is such a good example of people using a system <laughs> to win." And and that's just so unbelievable unbelievably cringe unbelievably it's been, cringe. like there has been a bunch of these movies lately like there was the one about like the behind the scenes about like air jordans you know like where they yes. came from but it's not like it's not a movie about like michael jordan it's about like the guys in the office that like and the, and, and the know, blackberry movie or something like yeah, about yeah, yeah, who yeah. made the blackberry like who there's fucking like, cares i heard um about the, there's like the you know, like the Tetris movie as well, which apparently is like an actual, like real distortion of what happened where it's like, you know, like this whole story about like, like, um, about the, it's like, there's the guy that invented it, but then there's also like the savvy American businessman that bought it to the West or some shit like that. It's just like, is this a way that they kind of like relitigate these, like these, these people are funding these movies to kind of like, um, to reframe themselves as heroes or whatever, yeah. you know, or like it's the only way that they can see themselves as heroes. So like, yeah. You know, like they wanted to be like Wolf of Wall Street or something, you know? <laughs> well, there you have it. Oh. There's your intro. Uh, everyone, everyone got a bit of stuff to get mad about. It's Red Planet. Welcome to the show. Um, we're going to kick off in the same way we do every week. Uh, and I'm going to ask, Dear Sweet Kira, what's the most base thing you did? Uh, over the last two weeks because it's been two weeks since oh my god jeez honestly it's gonna sound super boring but um still struggling with depression i think i might be somewhat over the hump despite the things that are happening in the world right now which sounds very counterintuitive but um yeah i've been just struggling super hard um so that's kind of it it's not very exciting though what, what you're saying is you've been keeping going despite the horrors you've been persisting that's that right. sounds pretty base. That sounds pretty okay, fucking base thanks, to me. Thanks. I know it's it's pretty boring if it happens over and over again. It's, you know, people want to hear more exciting, more base things, but like that's all I got, unfortunately. Well, I I disagree. I think that I think that there's a lot of people out there who need to hear you say that. And I think that saying that is really based. And I think that like, you know, a lot of people can think that, you know, it's 
it's real hard to go out there and do activism. Sometimes a lot of people can't do it. Like a lot of people who listen to our show are going to be disabled in a way that they can't like leave the house. Um, and I think that that's, you know, it, it, it's it's always the, the advice that I give people like that is that like you continuing to, to survive and persist in this world that actually doesn't uh, uh, work for you is based in and of itself, right? Because the, the, the system is not built for, for people with uh, disabilities, mental disabilities, uh, you know, mental health issues and stuff like that, so... Thank you. That's really kind of you to say, Mule. And you know what? I want to know what base thing you've been up to. Well, me. Oh my gosh. Uh, there's. It's. It's been a whole week of uh, of me sort of like going on all cylinders, firing on all cylinders again uh, with the union. I've I've been helping a, a bunch of people who've uh, been giving me phone calls that uh, I've had to sort of. Uh, in uh, well over the last few months with my sickness sort of say oh, I don't know if I have the time or energy to deal with that uh, but I've been getting back to a bunch of those people and speaking to them and one person that I completely forgot to get back to uh, surprised me on Wednesday morning I think with with a phone call a couple of phone calls uh, and I answered the phone and it was someone that I'd spoken to a few months ago about uh, getting a section 21 order for those of you who are not in the uk section 21 is a no-fault eviction it's where the landlord just says give me my house back for no reason um it's one of the worst laws that exists uh, in the uk that the the benefit landlords it's absolutely awful it makes people homeless it's it's responsible for about 75 percent uh of people who are who are like on the edge of becoming homeless like that's 75 percent of the reason why they're like that in our country that has a homelessness uh epidemic um, so basically, yeah, the, the, this family, they are migrants and they've lived here for about four years. They have leave to remain. Um, both the parents are ill. One of them's on benefits um, and the other one is basically getting an assessment. Uh, but I saw how she was moving when I was at the property, when I went to see them uh, the day after. And, and she's quite clearly physically disabled, like w with, her, with her legs and stuff. Um, so it, it's quite obvious. And uh, that's the kind of situation that they're in. The landlord is, uh, you know, unforgiving and unsympathetic to these kinds of things. Uh, so we did an emergency call out for an eviction resistance, which was happening the next day. Um, and I just want to say that if there's anyone from GMT watching or listening to this, I'm so proud of you. I'm so proud of our union because we managed to mobilize um, easily 10 people to, to turn up. Uh, you know, this this was a place in Moss Side, so it was uh, pretty easy for most people to get to. So pretty uh, happy that it that it was that kind of a scenario but we had some people from a squat uh that we helped like a few weeks ago turn up uh we had like a bunch of members turn up uh you know some ex-committee members and uh you know we had one person inside with the family talking to them uh trying to you know basically like understand their situation a bit better so that we have like a bit more of, of context to help them with I'd already got in touch with someone that we work with at the Greater Manchester Law Center to, to help them with their homelessness uh, uh, application because they were, I don't know if this bit was sort of lost in the live, but um, basically um, they were wanting to move them like uh, about an hour away to, to North Manchester where, you know, their kids are all at the point of, uh, uh, you know they've got they've got four kids they're all like 12 to 16 and they're all like like that's like a crucial formative time for their education so they just can't it's not not applicable for them to move that far away um and so great manchester law center are helping them with that they're, they're having a legal challenge to the homelessness decision um and hopefully we're going to send something over to the courts as well to to defer the the eviction uh, uh, uh decision and uh we we basically defended the the people we defended the tenants uh on thursday it was actually really easy and i do just want to like just tell you a little bit because i was organizing it 
It's the first eviction resistance I've ever organized. Um, it really does count to be a bit like a, a military sort of uh, in terms of like organizing and mobilizing. I know that sounds like a little bit cringe, but just hear me out. Um, so because we only had like um, about like nine or 10 people and they were all like very young people, they weren't necessarily like massive, strong people. Like what I was thinking about was, well, you know, if a bailiff wanted to break the law and try and get away with it and, and move someone, they could probably move one person quite easily. But if we got everybody to link arms together, um, in like a sort of mini military formation, it's going to be a lot harder. So I said, all right, well, as soon as the bailiffs are coming, I'll tell you all to tighten up, just get nice and tight uh, and stand in front of the door. They can't touch you. That's assault. Um, and we did that and it was super effective. The bailiff basically like didn't know uh, what to do. Like his face was a picture when he saw me, he was like, what's going on here then? And so then I had to like talk with him and say to him, you know, and uh, I think this is a really good anecdote for our unofficial slogan that we're not looking for people to debate. We're looking for people to act because this bailiff legit tried to debate me. He legit was trying to debate me on housing law being like, well, you should have known that they could have gone to the courts this morning and you should have known that this happened and you said that you know that housing decision and this, that and the other and all this stuff. And even though I was put on the spot and I didn't know a lot of this family's history, the great thing about it is that all I had to say to him, well, whatever the case, the fact remains that we're not leaving until you do. And that's yeah. all he could do. <laughs> so, you know, there it is, folks. You know, when people act, things get done. People yeah. get saved. People have, like, a lot more of a better time <laughs> in terms of, like, you know, uh, uh, just uh, uh, experiencing material conditions. So that was the most base thing that I did this week. But over to Tim. Tim, what about you? Thank you for that, Mule. Yeah, thanks. Okay. Comrade Mule. <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah, I don't know. I, um, I feel like I, I mean, I did do something that I feel like was pretty based this week, but I don't know if I'm ready to have that discussion on Red Planet <laughs> yet, but I will at some point, I think, um, maybe it's even like an episode we could do, but, um, oh, yeah. yeah. Um, yeah i'll put you in touch with our producer (laughs) yeah 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 i'll send conrad an email (laughs) but um so we'll just put a pin in it for now but um but yeah um (laughs) that's sorry that's kind of like a anti-climax but um we do however have some uh based based viewer action um in the notes this week from um a couple people um, we've got two here, so they can uh, fill in for me this week. We've got, um, so we've got base to viewer Steph. A few weeks ago, Steph wrote in to tell us about a paid day off work to do charity, clearing space at an allotment for use by a gardening group for displaced Ukrainians in Edinburgh. This will involve uh, clearing the ground, setting up raised beds and a polytunnel. Um, yeah, and what did they say? Getting paid to do gardening instead of process mortgage applications, which is a bullshit job anyway, is basically the dream. So a huge W for me. And so we've got some photos flicking through um, on screen now uh, of, yeah, yeah, of the little garden that they uh, that they got working on. So that's pretty cool. I love that massive uh, lavender bush or rosemary bush or whatever. I think it's lavender, but yeah, I'm loving that. <laughs> it's- um 
Yeah, it's butterfly Butter. lavender, I believe. <clears throat> yeah. Ooh. So, and um, we've also got base viewer Frisa, who says, this week I've attended a protest in support of Palestine, as well as reach out to a local Palestinian who I knew of but haven't talked much with, and will hopefully manage to go and have some tea with them this week and hopefully be able to lend some emotional support. That's great. Like, the little things as well, like just, um, yeah, reaching out to people in your community. Uh, great. Very based. Nice one, Frisa. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, so um, we always want to hear about any kind of base things that you've been doing. Uh, if you have anything like Steph and Frisa, you can um, yeah, shoot us a message on Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, or email to based at redplanetshow.com. Include your name and pronouns if you want to include them. Um, yeah, and we'll, um, we'll shout it out at the start of a later episode. Cool. So, um. Let's take a look at the news. Um, who who wanted to go first? Oh, that's going to be me. I want to talk about uh, what's going on at CDPR or CD Project Red. So yeah. if you've ever played Witcher, if you've ever played Cyberpunk, these are two major games that have been released by the CD Project Red studio. Um, many people love Witcher. Many people hate <laughs> cyberpunk uh whatever your feelings are you have to acknowledge that these are pretty major games um they've also this particular studio also has this reputation of claiming that they are like a humanitarian kind of studio in which they would never crunch their employees but turns out and, and by the way they got a lot of positive press from that people saying well, we're definitely going to buy your game uh but then they turned around and in order to make deadlines crunch their employees to create cyberpunk um so generally speaking, this studio has some pretty scummy behavior towards its developers. And now over the past, I believe, three months, they've done three rounds of layoffs. So that has led CDPR um, and others in the Polish gaming industry to unionize, which is pretty awesome because we rarely see this type of action in like tech. Um, so it's really, really exciting to see this happen. Um, let's see here. Um, the union explains on their website, we started talking about unionizing after the 2023 wave of layoffs when 9% of, of, of reds, that is roughly a hundred people were let go. Um, this event created a tremendous amount of stress and insecurity affecting our mental health and leading to the creation of this union in response. Having a union means having more security, transparency, better protection, and a stronger voice in times of crisis. In response, CD Project Red has stated we have been informed about the intention to form a trade union covering game dev companies, including our company. We will act in accordance with law and comply with legal obligations that might arise from that situation. At the same time, it's worth mentioning that the voice of Red's team is already represented by the Red team representatives, hmm, which is a democratically elected body representing all employees and independent of the management board. We have been working with them for over two years now, and we will continue to do so to keep our work environment transparent, safe, and healthy. And I like to mo uh, take this moment to point out that this is what many would regard as um, a yellow union, an organization that kind of like claims it's a union, tries to like use uniony words, um, maybe even get something done, you know, maybe even accomplishes a similar goal as a union would. But at the end of the day, they work in concert with employers and they don't work in opposition with employers. Um, and you can kind of see the results of that three waves of layoffs crunch that wasn't supposed to be crunched. Wow. And this what is the an effective of your union. Yellow... Yeah. What an effective <laughs> union. Right. So like 
I'm just very, very excited for CD Projekt Red devs to be able to um, to be able to get this uh, union representation. And also, as a gamer, can I just take a moment as a gamer? Let, let's just. I just want everyone to acknowledge that I'm a gamer. Can Capital she say G. that? Can she yeah. say that? I speak for all Rise gamers up. right now. By the way, as a gamer <laughs> um, who was severely disappointed by the cyberpunk video 2077 video game not only because of the content a lot of the content was a dud but lots of the criticisms of that game was that it was like unfinished that they put way more money in just getting keanu reeves to play in it versus actually paying the devs and letting the devs actually like create the game at the pace that they were meant to create this game um it resulted in a very lackluster product so even if you're not all that concerned with worker rights which i think you should be because don't be a bad person but also why are you watching this show if you're not into worker rights but if in the event that you accidentally clicked on us you should also support union the cdpr uh, staff unionizing because it's going to create a better gaming experience for you literally like can you imagine the embarrassment of someone asking you like okay what do you do for a living oh i'm a game developer what games have you worked on oh cyberpunk 2077 uh, yeah because you know like the, the in the in the popular culture like contemporary media analysis you know everybody was talking about how it was so bad and it was a failure and everyone is is gonna immediately because of that like sort of liberal brainwashing that we all go through uh put it down to the devs rather than the company itself right I remember there was even this is a little bit off topic but this I remember the rhetoric surrounding that 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 time when when CDPR released the very very buggy cyberpunk um after a ton of hype a ton of investment in Keanu Reeves and and advertising the game etc cetera, etc cetera, and it turned out to be buggy so many like redditor types were running around the internet being like if you don't if you speak ill of this game you are harming developers you are harm you're speaking ill you're, you are uh, shaming yeah, developers or you're insulting around. developers. Yeah. And it's like, if you really care about devs, then you should acknowledge that crunch is anti-dev, one. And two, um, you should also acknowledge that like any issues with your game is going to be the problem of the studio, the, basically the executives who are inflicting these like ridiculous deadlines on people and then not compensating their 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 employees uh, adequately for it. Yeah, there's um there was a thing that was going around, and I've seen it with other games as well, where they say, "Oh, if you don't support this game, and if you don't go out and buy it, then the you know all the the programmers and the artists and stuff aren't going to get paid." And I it's remember like, no, okay. that. So they are they're paid, you know, they're paid <laughs> for their time as it goes. They don't get like royalties for successful games. That goes all to like the studio heads. That, they you know, should honestly. I think but, they should get royalties, but like so, that's a whole other thing. There is a thing where um I'm pretty sure they had it for Cyberpunk, but there's a lot of other games will have a thing where it's if it hits a certain review target, then they get um like a bonus. So if, if it's like okay, cool, like, after the first two weeks, if all our reviews are, like, 9 out of 10 or above, then everyone gets a bonus. And it's kind of like, okay, I mean, that would be cool if it was a game that had been created, um, you know, like, if the if the if the workers had been taken care of when it was being made and that, you know, but, like, a lot of the criticism that people had for the development of like cyberpunk in specific was um, just like the corporate culture kind of um, hampering the development, you know, like 
they would they would create something and then you know someone would come along and they'd be like no we have to gut this entire system we have to move to this new system and we have to copy and paste this to here and just ruining the work of the people that were really trying to build something the entire time so it's like if if the game does poorly it's got more to do with that kind of corporate structure and like the people that are kind of like the people that are more removed from the actual creating the game but have like this huge say in how it goes or whatever so it's kind of like like how about the bosses don't get their bonuses if um, you know like if the reviews like it, like you should just you should pay the staff like you know you should just pay them more anyway like they shouldn't mm. have to like you know like be held up to the standard mm-hmm. that has like their personal work probably has very little to do with like it you know for to do with the things that people were complaining about like no one was like looking at the game and being like man like these these textures like I'm looking at like you know the textures on this cyborg and thinking like the guy that did these like he did a shitty job and that's why I'm only going to give this a fucking seven out of ten you know it's like people look at they're like this looks like it's mashed together this looks like you know like it doesn't make sense there's you know huge consistency problems and stuff it's like yeah those are the things that people complain about and those aren't the things that the Mm-hmm. the workers get much say over you know like um, it also for me it also represents a disconnect from like the executives versus like the devs and actually the the audience that is that the customer base because so many gamers are like i'm happy to wait another month i'm happy to wait another three months like there's also always those handful of assholes that are like meh, 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 meh. but like generally Nintendo speaking fans, yeah <laughs> yeah thank you <laughs> thank you meal um but like generally speaking like most people are like I'm willing if I'm gonna if I'm gonna spend like sixty or seventy dollars on a video game, I would just, I'll wait and and I, and also like buy a product that people put labor into. I'm okay waiting like three months more. Yeah. Like, but it seems a very like well we set this deadline. It's a complete disconnect from reality when like the suits are like we set a deadline. We got to hit our we had to hit our numbers. It's just like what do you no? So very very excited for the unionization happening at CDPR. Yeah, I think it's like a huge positive move. And I yeah, like um I love that it was started by CDPR people, but they you know, it's a it's a Polish game workers union for the entire game workers, you know, the games industry over there. So instead of just being like, hey, we're just going to do this for our people, they were like, you know, they had a bigger vision. They were like, no, like across the entire industry. And I know that like in Poland, they are a huge chunk of that industry, but that kind of makes it cooler that they're like, you know, there's other people out there that, um, that we can help. And yeah. So, um, yeah, I think that's like, it's super cool that they've done that. And, um, yeah, looking forward to seeing, uh, see what they can get out of it. Next, we have uh, some American news. So I want to go to my American correspondent, Mule. Mule. Hello. Hi. Would you like to tell us what's going on at Kaiser Permanente, the the uh, the one of the many monsters that has been created by the U.S. healthcare system? I would love to. Um, so this is huge, huge news. Kaiser workers are out on the largest healthcare strike in U.S. history this week. More than seventy-five thousand unionized workers at Kaiser Permanente walked off the job. The latest in a string of high-profile labor actions across the country. Um, of course, uh, as uh, Kara was uh, sort of like uh, talking about, uh, the U.S. healthcare system is so so bad, uh, and Kaiser Permanente are like you know uh, 
it's it's just 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 one just one sort of uh, bullet point and a long list of things that are wrong with it. Uh, but essentially, um, there was a three day three day strike against Kaiser Permanent on Wednesday to protest the non profit hospital giant's alleged unfair labor practices, bad faith bargaining, inadequate wages, and chronic staff shortages shortages that employees say are harming them and patients um, to be clear this was <clears throat> last wednesday not this it was like two wednesdays ago because yeah uh, two wednesdays ago yeah. yeah 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 okay anyways um <laughs> no worries um but yeah the the also i think it's important to to sort of like look at this from from a uk perspective as well because we have um a lot of striking do- doctors in the nhs at the minute as well and they're all striking for the same reasons and this is a result of the privatization of large swathes of the NHS. So there are lots of similarities between the things that um, workers at Kaiser Permanente are struggling with and what workers in the NHS are are struggling with. So uh, if you are, for some reason, listening to or watching our show, thinking that the way to solve the the problems in the nhs is to privatize it uh first of all what are you doing how did you find us uh are you a cop secondly uh no this is proof that it is not the the way to solve things um so the coalition of kaiser permanente unions which represents the seventy-five thousand kaiser workers who walked off the job wednesday said the picket lines will be set up well were set up at hundreds of kaiser hospitals and facilities in california colorado washington and other states as well as in washington uh dc uh, the walkout was, expect- was expected to be the largest healthcare worker strike in U.S. history. Uh, the coalition released, uh, sorry, the coalition released a statement that said jobs affected by the strike include licensed vocational nurses, emergency department technicians, radiology technicians, ultrasound sonographers, teleservice representatives, respiratory therapists, X-ray technicians, optometrists, certified nursing assistants, dietary services, behavioral health workers, surgical technicians, pharmacists, and pharmacy technicians, transporters, home health aides phlebotomists, medical assistants, dental assistants, call center representatives, housekeepers, among hundreds of other positions. So we are talking just an absolutely massive uh, walkout. Um, And so, yeah, absolutely incredible, incredible moves. Uh, We will be hopefully reporting on uh, some wins. They're basically, they've been demanding $25 minimum wage for all Kaiser employees, 24.5% wage increase over the course of a new four-year contract. Uh, and union negotiators have also called on Kaiser to hire at least 10,000 new workers by the end of the year to help alleviate staff shortages. Um, you know, the staff shortages that at least according to healthcare workers in California resulted in care being delayed or denied. So, that's the situation with Kaiser Permanente union unionized workers. Um, Can I just say and, that it's yeah. always it's always really cool. I know this is like super basic, but it's always really cool to see people organize that aren't immediately like hammer and sickle standing people. I don't know. It's just really cool to when you were describing like all the different types of employees that came together. I highly doubt these are all you know, like commie posters or anything. Right. These, are, yeah. these are like, if I could dare say regular people. <laughs> so, no, 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 they will be. I think that's a really not good like point. Us. <laughs> I think that's a really good point because at the end of the day, it proves that revolutionary optimism is true, right? The material conditions under capitalism will get 
so much that people will be forced to do communist things. They will be forced to come together collectively and help each other. And, uh, you know, it's it's one in a long line of uh, examples where, uh, you know, people are coming together to collectively help each other when things are getting real shit. Um, and, yeah, it's just, it's just a natural human uh, sort of... Uh, you could say, you could say it's human nature. I'd be inclined to agree. <laughs> anyway... <laughs> Um, I'm sure everybody is aware of what's going on um, in Palestine recently, and we have a lot of stuff to uh, update you about that if you haven't already heard most of it. Um, So, yeah, I can't remember who said they wanted to do the next news story. I think we said that we are all going to chip in. But I I want to preface this by saying this uh, upcoming segment is not even remotely going to be a comprehensive analysis of what's going on in Israel and Palestine. Um, Next week, we will be doing that, though. We will be doing a a comprehensive rundown of all of this. And I'm sure there will be other events that are going to unfold between now and then um, that we will also be covering. So right now we're going to run over. We're going to we're going to discuss some of it but not even remotely all of it. Um, So make sure you tune in next week if you want to have that part of that discussion. Yeah. So, <clears throat> um, the Kickstarter to this uh, entire new segment was that uh, Hamas, um, who are a reactionary force of uh, basically Palestinians who, uh, you know, basically desperately want to just liberate Palestine, um, launched an attack killing uh, 1,300 Israelis. You know, some of these people were settlers. Uh, some of them were, were Israeli military. Um, and as a result of that, Israel and America states intentions to wipe Gaza off the map. Now, uh, obviously, the main thing uh, to to point out here, if our listeners or viewers don't know, uh, is that Hamas is not all 2.2 million people in Gaza. Hamas are a um, you know group that basically organized in resistance to Israel back in 1988. I might be wrong about that. It might be 1998. It might be off by like a decade or something. Um, and their constitution, their, their, their actual like sort of, you know, set down in stone thing is that they want to liberate the land that used to be Palestine, that is still Palestine, uh, you know, according to this co-host at least. Um, and, um, you know, they want to do that by getting rid of the Israeli government. Uh, the Israeli government, of course, um, you know, because this is a, an active anti-colonialist statement, have said that this accounts to the genocide of every single Jew in the world. It's, of course, not true. Um, there might be some people in Hamas who have said this at some point in time. But again, I think every single person here on this panel uh, is going to say to you that, like, criticizing Israel is not anti-Semitic. You are not being anti-Jewish if you criticize the actions of a massively white supremacist settler colonialist state. We have had guests on in the past that have said that Israel, even though they completely disagree with Israel, it's not white supremacist. It is overwhelmingly uh, white supremacist in nature. It's overwhelmingly white European Jews who have, uh, you know, citizen status in Israel. Um, you know, even Palestinian Jews who, you know, now live in Israel are, are treated as second-class citizens. Um, you know, even Arabic Jews that, that, you know, the state of Israel and defenders of the state of Israel, you know, claim to support and want to help liberate are also treated as second-class citizens within Israel. Uh, but I should get back. Well, I mean, this is this is all the point of it but like i should get back to the point of this particular uh news segment um so senator lindsey graham uh who you all probably know uh he's an american uh disgusting piece of shit basically said 
um, um, well, basically urged Israel to level Gaza. Um, and this is not just something that, you know, Lindsey Graham is, is saying there are just Democrats, Republicans, um, every single, you know, ridiculous liberal, neoliberal government and country all over the world, like, are just basically calling for the extermination of yeah. Palestinians. And there's been um, interviews on CNN now. They've had, um, <clears throat> they've had a couple of them with IDF soldiers who have said, you know, these like terrible things by saying, like, we're not just going for Hamas, like everyone is a target now, you know, like uh, we have to exterminate everyone. And it's like, they don't even challenge them on it or anything, you know, like the hosts don't say like, you know, like, wait, so you're saying you're going to kill non-combatants, you're going to kill, you know, it's just like, they just say it and they just go like, yeah, cool, sweet, you know, like carry on. And it's like, it's wild to see these people are just like mm -hmm. cheering on a genocide. And this isn't, you know, this is like, uh, you know, like imagine just like any kind of media agency interviewing any other, you know, like a soldier from any other con conflict and hearing them talk about killing women and children and stuff and mm -hmm. just allowing it to go unchallenged. And I mean, it's like, you know, this obviously has a lot to do with the, um, what they call the special relationship between America and Israel. You know, there's, um, there's so much going on there and there's like this huge history of, I guess, you know, like one hand washing the other there. But um, yeah, you know, like when when we say like you know Israel is like complicit and you know this kind of like uh, white supremacist kind of um, uh, the thing or whatever, it's you know America is a huge part of that and it goes like it goes both ways. They you know like America and Israel are training each other's police that then you know like they American police train with. Israeli special forces to come back to, you know, places like Ferguson and oppress black people. You know, it's like there's this gigantic um, project there who is like, that is like um, not just like, you know, we're seeing it with the, the Israel-Palestine stuff, but it's like so much bigger than that as well. But we'll get into that more in our deeper analysis at a later, at a yeah. later date. I think... Um... A really important thing to say um, is that, you know, we, we at Red Planet, we're here to give you the good news. And uh, while there's not much good news to be found uh, in this recent development, there have been massive. And when I say massive, we're talking over 100,000 people in London, UK, uh, thousands of people in Manchester. I don't know the amount of people in various different uh, cities in, in, in America, uh, but in, in, in uh, Amman, in Jordan, in France, in tons of cities all over the world, there have been huge pro-Palestinian. Well, yeah. yeah, yeah, in, in, in New Zealand, Ontario as well. There's, there's huge pro-Palestinian support. And um, of course, you know, the, the vile uh, Prime Minister, the vile uh, Home Office, uh, Home Secretary, Suella Braverman and Rishi Sunak here in the UK have said that they want the, the police to consider waving a Palestinian flag as an act of terrorism, they want to. They want to, you know, say this is worthy for grounds of arrest. Um, of course, um, a woman in France arrested for speaking Arabic, and the yeah. police 
she like all she said was like she basically greeted a neighbor she was arrested yeah. and, and the police yeah. yeah yeah the the police uh, eventually let her go i don't think she had any charges filed but they said you know we can't we just can't be too careful at times like this it's like what are you talking about like yep. Yeah, yeah, it's, yeah, it's, yeah. Well, what we're seeing, I think that's a great thing to mention, Tim, because what we're seeing is the vast amounts of Islamophobia that have been drilled into the the, the imperial core um, public consciousness since 9-11 is now ultimately being exacted by, uh, you know, the... the the genocide of, of Palestinians, like this is an attempted genocide. They are trying to manufacture consent uh, uh, with the, of the whole population of the world that this is fine. This is a fine thing to happen. Um, but again, we, we're, we're going to get into that as well. Um, you know, it's 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 vile just to see all the American politicians, you know, including Joe Biden, um, you know. But again, you know, tell me, tell me again how voting for Joe Biden is uh, uh, or the Democrats is harm reduction. Yeah. Tell me, tell me again uh, how that is a good thing to do. Um, you know, and Israel have been pummeling Gaza with rockets and gave um, basically Gazans. If, if you basically if you think about Gaza, Gaza is like this this 25 mile strip. Um, that is surrounded by sea, it's surrounded by a huge ring fence, and then also the border with Egypt. Um, the border with Egypt, which has historically really been one of the only safe passing uh, 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 crossings for you know refugees, Palestinian refugees who've had enough, they want to leave, they want to get out. It's called the Rafah crossing that is now uh, closed. It's been closed by Egypt, by the way. Oh, I should also um, add that not only is it closed by Egypt, but any sort of um, aid that is Egypt is trying to provide to Gaza is now not able to continue because Israel keeps bombing that area. So the yeah. only the only the only small little patch of land in which you can get through um, Egypt is one upholding the blockade against people traversing that that particular entry point but also any aid being provided cannot be provided anymore because israel is bombing anyone who's trying to provide aid yes and also um alongside that um the israeli defense force demanded that uh gazans in the north gaza area so basically half like the, the 12 mile sort of like northern end of gaza they've said like Every Palestinian in there needs to leave. That's one million people. One million people who, where are they going to go when they get to southern Gaza? Like, there's barely, it's it's overcrowded in Gaza as it is. Um, and, you know, when they've tried to leave, well, the Israeli Air Force has bombed the fuck out of those refugees, you know? So th this is just like not... I feel like we should back up a bit because I think we're making assumptions of, a I mean... I I think everyone is probably watching. Most people probably understand the news. But just to be very clear, uh, what's currently happening is because of Hamas's um, killing of like 1,300 Israelis, um, Israel has decided to go full on genocide of Gazans and not just exclusively Gazans, but like any Palestinian, like they're also committing uh, these genocidal acts in the West Bank, but they're especially vowing to wipe out the Gaza Strip, um, which, by the way, is a densely packed open air prison wherein extraordinarily disenfranchised uh, Palestinians are trapped and 50 percent of the people living in Gaza are children. 50 percent of the people living in Gaza are under the age of 18. So Israel has issued a uh, you got to leave. First, they started bombing. They drop, I believe, 6000 bombs. Um, 
prior to this announcement for the record in a small strip that Mule was describing. But not only that, they're now saying, or this was already like maybe 24 hours ago. So time might is probably up at this point. They issued a 24-hour warning for 1.1 million people in the north to evacuate to the south of Gaza, which, by the way, if you didn't know, Gaza is extraordinarily packed to the brim. Like, that's one of the biggest criticisms of Gaza is that it is an in- intensely d- dense, effectively concentration camp, if I could be so bold to say, of Palestinian people. So telling all those people, um, 1.1 million, that they need to pack it up and leave to somewhere else that they're unable, that, that is not there, would crash on couches, what, does, what, 24 hour notice to do that and to also let, you know, just abandon all of your belongings, abandon your home, the few memories that you've been able to have, you know, the few things you've been able to accumulate, you have to abandon. Um, so every organization, including many charitable organizations that normally never take sides, are even speaking up and saying, this is wrong. This is a war crime. This is humanitarian crisis. This is this is the, any any way, shape, or form that described it. Even even parties that are normally neutral are coming out and saying this um, because it is. It straight up is. This is Nakba Nakba 2.0. You're insisting. You're doing a force a forced displacement of a massive amount of Palestinians and saying if you're not leaving, we will slaughter you. Yeah, and we all currently... we all we all know that Israel's 24 hour notice is nothing but them trying to play the good guy ever so slightly before they do what they want to do, which is genocide, a massive amount of Palestinians, including children. Well, this has been, they've talked about it quite a bit in the past. The warnings um, are not, they're not so much, um, or they're definitely not perceived so much as like a warning. You know, they say like, hey, we gave you advance notice, so you guys leave. But apparently that's not how it comes at all. It uh, comes through basically as a phone call, saying that you're going to get bombed and it's it's more of a threat than uh you know i think and they and uh you've also done like like, roof knocks and things like that where they drop a bomb before they drop more bombs to like knock essentially so that's that's very yeah yeah it's um it's a thing as well where it's like it also makes people terrified of answering any phones or anything like that um there's you know, like uh, people intentionally get their phones disconnected because then they know if the phone still, if the call still comes through, that's that's the idea of saying the bomb's coming because that's the only call that can come through a disconnected line over there. So, um, oh my gosh, yeah. that's terrifying. So, which means that they have to cut themselves off mm-hmm. from, you know, and this is like, you know, in a, in a place where they're also cutting off the power and internet and stuff. A traditional kind of like phone line is was the only way that you could out actually get information in and out because that's obviously you don't like with an old phone, you don't need power or anything. What you need is a phone line mm-hmm. to get it. So, um, well, I- yeah. So it's like this like terrible thing where it's like, okay, you have to choose. Like, do you want to, you know, do you want to, do you want to know if this is going to be a bombing call or do you want to, you know, be able to actually communicate with everyone outside and what's mm-hmm. going on? No. I should also so, yeah, say I should also say that in addition to what uh, to what we've mentioned, uh, Israel has also cut off all water, food, medical aid, electricity, completely to Gaza. So if that wasn't bad enough, <laughs> and there's already been an existing blockade for a long time, yeah. like the um, the Israeli Egyptian blockade that I think has been going for like the better a better chunk of 
you know, the 2000s so far, which is like the, you know, there's always been like the fence and all this kind of stuff, but they've been like, they've been blockading uh, like cement and things like that, like building materials so mm. that people can't fix things. People can't build new infrastructure, anything like that. Mm-hmm. Um, even just like, yeah, like um, any kind of like plumbing equipment, anything like that. That's why they say like turning on, like Israel have just <clears throat> announced that they're turning the water back on or whatever like that. They're like, it, it doesn't matter. Like this makes no difference to us because most Palestinian people were having to go to fill up jugs of water for their houses, even before the bombing started, you know, it's like, yeah, it's, mm-hmm. it's like a lot of the stuff is, um, it gets token stuff. It looks good on paper. It goes, Oh, you know, mm-hmm. look, Hey, speaking um, speaking of token stuff, they've even dropped yeah. flyers. Isn't that nice? Yeah, yeah, yeah you know things yeah. like that. Like, yeah, um, it's, um, sounds familiar. Yeah, Does anyone really kind of dropping flyers yeah. on a civilian yeah, population yeah. before you bomb like them? When, you, when we see stuff like this, like you know the IDF, and they're telling us like you know this is what we do. We do the warnings. We do the drops. We turn the water back on and stuff. You have to look at it in the context of like what is already happening there, and it's um. Yeah, usually it's uh, it's not so simple. So, um, just being conscious of the amount of time that we have, I want to run through real quick um, the stuff that's going on in the West Bank as well. Um, so, you know, we've spoken about Gaza, we've spoken about Hamas coming out of Gaza and, and attacking, uh, you know, Israeli settlers and stuff like that. But here's the thing, you know, uh, this is how you know that it's just genocide based as uh kira has mentioned like previously like literally like they're just attacking palestinians in the west bank as well uh, an illegal israeli settler was filmed shooting a palestinian at point blank range in the city of hebron in the southern west bank uh that was a report by anadolu agency uh video circulated by israeli non-governmental organization but uh who are a pro-palestinian sort of like uh i think liberation uh, uh, organization showed an armed settler assaulting Palestinians in the village of Al Tawani near Yatta, south of Hebron, before opening fire at one of them at point blank range in the presence of the Israeli army. In a statement, the Palestinian Health Ministry said the critical injury resulted from the ammunition fired by the occupation forces impacting the abdomen. The wounded individual was transported to Shahid Abu Al Hassan Al Qasim Hospital in Yatta. Um, so not really, you know, saying this is a terrible thing that happened and it shouldn't have happened. Just like, yes, they've been shot. And now they're in hospital. Great. Thanks. Good. Um, in general, the Israeli army and settler attacks against Palestinians in the West Bank have increased dramatically since last Saturday with 55 Palestinians killed and more than 1,100 others wounded. Palestinians in Israel suspended from jobs over conflict. Um, oh, yeah, sorry. Palestinians who are living in Israel have been suspended from their jobs over the conflict. Uh, which is, again, more evidence that, you know, Palestinian Jews, Palestinians living in Israel who've decided to, like, you know, just try and adapt and, and, and you know, live in the settler colonial world that Israel's created for them, they're still living as second-class citizens. So, you know, if Israel's only concerned about suppressing Hamas and not Palestinians in general, um, this is proof that the wider population, it doesn't really read it like that. Um, according to human rights activist Samir Abu Shams, the Israeli army is in violation of multiple international laws, particularly the Geneva Conventions, which stress that civilians should be unharmed in situations of war and armed conflict. In another instance, on Friday, 13th of October, Karim al-Jalad was driving home from Tulkaram's vegetable market to his home in the southern district of the city at about 8.20 p.m., uh, he was on the street near the Jewish settlement of Gishuri, which connects the west of Tulkaram to its south Israeli 
sorry, to its south, Israeli soldiers fired at his car. Uh, uh, and Al-Jalad, thinking it was, uh, you know, sound bombs, basically just kept driving, but he was hit three times by live ammunition in the chest, in the hand, and the sh- so- shoulder. Uh, there were five bullets on the front of Karim's car. His cousin, Allah Al-Jalad, said to Al-Jazeera, Karim kept driving on the road until he reached the Al-Safir roundabout. From there, he was transferred by ambulance to the local hospital. So that's just some of the uh, atrocities that have been going on in the West Bank um, just as a result of this. Again, you know, the, the reason that we say this, the reason that we're trying to like put some clarification out there for people who may be listening to our show, who may be like worried, like, oh my God, I absolutely need to, um, you know, make sure I'm saying the right thing about Israel. I need to make sure I'm saying the right thing about what's happened and stuff like that. Um, I think, I think it's a good thing to remember that like, while the focus is on Gaza at the minute, Israeli settlers, the Israeli Defense Force are still killing people in the West Bank, which is hundreds, thousands of miles away from Gaza. It's nowhere near it. Um, Hamas mm-hmm. doesn't even operate there. Um, and also, uh, another thing to remember is that this is an active occupation. I think all of my co-hosts can agree here that, you know, while it's terrible that Israeli, uh, you know, civilians have died, they are not technically civilians they are people who've been lied to by the israeli government the israeli government has lied and said that it is safe to come live here it is your right no it is your destiny to come and live on this stolen land that is not yours and they have made them cannon fodder that like they do not care about the lives of the settlers near gaza who died because they were put there for that reason they were put there so that if hamas does attack they have a reason to go to war with them that's literally the modus operandi on this shit so you know it's awful but you but if you're feeling sorry for for these people who've died you should be feeling sorry because they were tricked they were literally tricked they were lied to they um i mean like the, the 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 u.s and israel kind of propaganda machine is like just immense and you can see that in the reactions to israeli like white israeli jews on the other side of the world having breakdowns thinking that there's going to be a national day of jihad and that palestinians are going to come kill them in their homes and all these kind of things or like you know people freaking out about their palestinian uber driver it's all like this is so deranged you know are this you is like these, these are like real like this is a real brain worms you know and um and this is a part of this propaganda project that they are kind of you know uh, that they have been exposed to where it's like they think that they are under attack by the people that they are like brutally subjugating you know and um you know like eve Barlow and Barry Weiss and all those people that are like kind of pushing these lines and stuff. They there's they have nothing on the line whatsoever. Like they will never be meaningfully affected by this conflict, you know. Um, but yeah, and and also going in with um, what Mule was saying about how these people were put on the front lines, like these settlers that people put out into the kibbutz to kind of like you know like settle these areas and stuff. They are, you know, these are the people that have been taken hostage as well. And the IDF has been releasing, you know, like these notes and statements saying that saving, rescuing hostages is just like not a priority for them, you know, like. Yeah, they've already bombed Gaza where the hostages are being kept and killed their own Israeli people. (laughs) Like that's, that's, that's what it means to them. You know, it's like these people are like 
secondary they're sort of their own people that they say that they're you know trying to protect and all this kind of stuff they're secondary to the expansion of israel and the destruction of palestine and you know the the cleans ethnic cleansing of the palestinian people so um yeah i think that really kind of shows you where their like where their priorities are i mean they're telling us where their priorities are you know like um i think it's pretty obvious so yeah, it's um the other thing to to know is that Israel has um mandatory conscription. So whereas if you see, you know, like an 18-year-old Palestinian kid, like who IDF IDF classifies every 18-year-old person and over as a military combatant. In Israel, these people are actually trained with weapons they have a service weapon that they take home with them a lot of them there's periods where they're they're told they have to keep their weapon on them even if they're just like chilling you know like so you see a lot of photos of you know settlers and they'll just be chilling wearing casual clothes but they'll have like a rifle and things like that whereas like these people are military trained they you know they have all that kind of stuff and they are part of like this like kind of um you know, this like they are they are just as much a part of the occupation as, you know, like a general that has been in the army for like, you know, fifty years or whatever like that. They are like soldiers and they're on the front line. So I think um, you know, there's like a lot of stuff where they they unfairly malign young Palestinians as you know, like, you know, as like soldiers or warriors, you know, like I saw like people being called Hamas warriors and shit. And it's like, no, these are just children. Whereas I think it's, it's fair to say if there is a young person in Israel, they've done the military conscription and stuff. Like if you've, if you've taken part in this, like you're a soldier, you know, you went, you, you put on the uniform, you, you have the gun, you, all that kind of stuff. Like you're part of this, you know, I should, like, also, I should also add that, um, I've read that the White House is going to send or has maybe already sent like I think like 20,000 rifles to Israeli settlers to arm themselves against Palestinian people. Not only that, but the um, National uh, Security or Minister of National Security of Israel, Ben Gavir, is also distributing 10,000 rifles to uh, Israeli settlers and many of them who are illegally settled in the West Bank. So um yeah, the just this this stark distinction that people are trying to make about um, you know, military versus versus civilian. I mean, I can have a whole I have a whole thing about that. I don't I think we're out of time. Like we're really over yeah, time. Yeah, we need but to um, yeah. next <laughs> week we will be talking about this in depth. So make sure you join us next week when we talk about um and we'll have more more to discuss, I'm sure, as unfortunately these events unfold even further. Um make sure you tune in next week. Okay, real quick, uh, just before we jump into our guest section, uh, comrades of the show, Palestine action, not in the UK, but in the US, very interestingly, have blockaded the entrance to Cambridge, Massachusetts, Elbit factory, which is owned by Israel's largest weapons firm. They sprayed paint and blood red paint spilled across the front to symbolize the Palestinian bloodshed. A spokesperson said, we will target any Israeli company and weapons factory complicit in the ongoing massacre of the Palestinian people across the world. Palestine, we are with you. Um, and the Palestine Action UK have actually released a website detailing 50 sites of um people like companies and organizations 
organizations that are complicit in uh, the genocide of Palestinians. Uh, so weapons manufacturers, um, you know, agencies that hire staff to work in these factories, uh, security firms, all this kind of stuff. They've released that. And, uh, you know, what kind of actions um, could be done against them uh, in a safe and legal manner? Um, of course, we would never tell you to do anything that was illegal here on Red Planet. Uh, but solidarity and love to our comrades at Palestine Action and with all the Palestinian people. But before we go on any further, don't forget, folks, we have a Patreon. Oh my gosh, you can give us money. Uh, we're doing really, really well on the Patreon at the moment. I want to say, um, I think we're at like $900 or something like that. Around there, yeah. So we're... we're we're so, so, so close to being able to afford an editor, gang. So if you've been waiting to be the heroes, yeah, that take us that little bridge further on to get us to that to that goal so that we can hire an editor, so that you can get more Red Planet content, so that we can get more eyes on our show, uh, now's the time to do so. Please go to patreon.com forward slash red underscore planet. Help us get an editor. Um, you can subscribe from as little as two dollars, two pound a month, uh, three New Zealand dollars fifty. Uh, you know, so yeah, make sure, make sure you get over and do that. Anyway, it's time for us to get into our main segment. <laughs> so, we at Red Planet are always saying how the revolution will come from outside of the imperial core, in the periphery, the colonized, struggling countries where wealth extraction from capitalists and neo-colonialism have devastated the land and the people. But some things we rarely touch on are the revolutionaries of the past. Burkina Faso, Cuba, Vietnam. But this week, specifically, we're going to be talking about Ethiopia with returning guest, the one and only Anansi from Anansi's Library. How are you doing, Anansi? Welcome to the stream. Welcome to the show. Hi, how's everyone doing? You know. Doing good. Yeah. Well, <laughs> like all things considered, yeah. The horrors persist, uh, but, you know. How are, how are you? I, as good as y'all are doing. I'll, I'll, <laughs> So uh, we've had Anansi on the show before they came on to talk to us. God, it was like almost two years ago, I think. Um, what were you talking with us about? I can't even remember. We, were, we were talking about like protests. And yeah, riots protests, riot tactics. Mm. And we were, like, had a spot like undercover cops and things like that. Yes. Um, so, but just to people who don't know you or aren't familiar with that particular episode, please introduce yourself. Yeah, so my name is Anansi. Um, I run the channel, uh, appropriately named Anansi's Library, uh, where I talk about whatever I end up feeling feeling about talking about, but I generally will talk about books, um, like radical theory, things like that. My most recent video was on uh, anarcho-nihilism, just kind of explaining mm. that topic. And um, yeah, my one of my most recent massive projects has been my video on the Ethiopian Revolution, um, which... I think I was working for that like almost a year and a half, um, just like researching and reading a lot of different books and, and writing it. But yeah, that's generally what my channel is all about. Uh, just, yeah, talking about whatever I find interesting or important. And it's an incredible uh, video. It's about two hours long, two and a half hours long with, with lots and lots of uh, highly detailed information in there. Um, again, you know, as, as I said in the intro, this is a bit of a blind spot for us on Red Planet. So uh, do you want to talk to us a little bit just about like, uh, I guess, a brief modern history of uh, Ethiopia? Uh, yeah. Um, yeah. So yeah, this is this is a very, very dense, dense topic. I when I started researching it, 
I wasn't intending it for, for it to be such a massive project. And as I like as I got deeper and deeper and deeper, I just the the well did not meet an end, and I just kept getting more and more information. So like a brief wow. history, people are probably familiar with the uh, the war that took place uh, recently in Ethiopia that started in 2020. It uh, actually ended uh, last year, back in November, if I remember correctly, or around that time. It ended um, last year. Um, but the the whole the entire Tigray Tigray genocide was a, a very very big topic that people were talking about, and essentially um, the Ethiopia right now, like in its modern context, um, is in a very interesting position. So basically, the 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 revolution kind of quote unquote ends in like 1991, and the government that takes place after that which is controlled by the by the tplf the tigray people's liberation front but is a coalition party including um a lot of different organizations the, co- the coalition is basically the eprdf is the acronym a- another thing with studying the ethiopian relation there are a lot of a lot of acronyms that at times sound very similar or are the same and it can get a little confusing my cat is on my desk right now just <laughs> demanding incredible, <laughs> incredible content but um yeah so the the EPRDF takes uh, takes over Ethiopia in 1991. Um, basically, the dirge collapses after the collapse of the Soviet Union, and um, that's right now. Right now, the that that party is no longer in power because essentially, in 2016 or uh, in 2016, um, Abiy Ahmed, when he became the new prime minister of Ethiopia, he kind of reorganized um, the political structures there so that the EPRDF was no longer the ruling coalition party. He created another a new coalition coalition party um to kind of reorganize the balance of of power in ethiopia which was one of the reasons that the um the war with the tplf started there was there was a couple reasons it was a it was a mess of a situation but yeah um that's kind of a brief modern context to like breakdown of what's going on like now the ethiopian government is like you know joining the BRICS program um with with china and trying to kind of grow economically and uh yeah gotcha gotcha um and um in terms of like the the revolution that you specifically talk about um in the video it's like um i, do, I don't want to get this wrong because i haven't watched the video yet but like it seems to me that you sort of like uh start off with the revolution um that um you know began from uh basically uh, uh rebelling against the highly selassie uh empire right which is like the 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 emperor was in place or like you know the empire itself was in place for like hundreds of years um and so in in terms of that is that is that kind of like where the revolutionary attitude in in ethiopia began it it's 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 um that's where it it kind of is the upswell in 1974 when Haile Selassie is deposed but the the revolutionary like attitude and spirit starts building um pretty long before then so most people are going to are going to say the Ethiopian Revolution starts in in 1974, and I feel like that's that's kind of a cop out answer because um, the Air the Eritrea the Eritrea okay so Eritrea is a a country or at the time was a region to the north of of Ethiopia that um, was controlled by the Haile Selassie regime. Basically, the Italians invaded Eritrea in the 40s and took it over when they were colonizing Ethiopia. And after, um, you know, the fall of Italian fascism in, um, in the late 40s, the British basic, basically, not just the, not just the British, it was the basically this thing called the Four Powers Commission, which was the, the USSR, the United States, um, the, uh, England, and I think, I think France, 
the four of them basically were kind of redrawing some of the the lines on the Ethiopian map now that they had been it had been taken back from the Italians, and they basically worked with the Ethiopian government and Haile Selassie to ba- make Eritrea a federation of Ethiopia. So, stop brushing my mic, Cyrus. Sorry, <laughs> this cat. But um, so basic basically, the intention was that Eritrea would be like a federation of Ethiopia, so they would be technically part of Ethiopia, but still have like local autonomy. But Haile Selassie's regime, basically, as soon as he takes power in Ethiopia, works over the next decade or so to just slowly degrade that autonomy. And it gets it gets to the point where um, it gets to the point where in 1962, um, Eritreans start the ELF, the Eritrean Liberation Front. And that's that is kind of, in my opinion, where the revolution begins, especially because it has um, at this point, the Ethiopian student movement is starting to rise up. And this is going to be where most of the revolutionary fervor in Ethiopia comes from. And that particular moment when the Eritrean struggle kicks off is a huge radicalizing and like a dividing moment for the Ethiopian student movement. It kind of kicks a lot of into more radical action because, you know, there are there are a lot of Eritrean students who are in Ethiopia at this time. Like and some of them are, you know, leaving to go join the Eritrean struggle. Some of them are being repressed by the Haile Selassie regime. And some of them are like literally getting into arguments and sometimes fistfights um, on campuses over, you know, this Eritrean, the Eritrean struggle. It's it's yeah, it's a very it's a very intense situation. So that kind of causes a lot of the Ethiopian student movement to become more radicalized and also is the beginning of some of the divisions in it because they're not all unified on what they're calling the Eritrean question, which is really just the question of do, do Eritreans deserve to be free or not? It's right. like, it's a very simple answer. It's yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so, so the, the revolutionary attitudes really start taking a lot of, a lot of, um, build up in 1962, but the revolution proper in Ethiopia at least starts in 1974. Okay, cool. Um, and so you've you've sort of touched on a little bit about like uh, you know w- what happened in terms of like uh, you know the the I guess the uh, the meddling by the imperial powers. You know, first it was Italy, and then um, you know the the four powers commission, like you say. Um, but I guess like I think a thing that we try and focus on a lot in uh, uh red planet is uh materialism now obviously you've spoke to us about the materialism of the 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 eritrean people um you know their liberation they were concerned with and and uh that kind of stuff but what about because you you're talking about the student uprising um and maybe you want to like i don't know uh talk about these two things separately it's entirely up to you but like what were what were generally the material conditions like in ethiopia at the time of the revolution yeah, so this was one of the like interesting and like central questions of the Ethiopian student movement at the time is them trying to kind of define what the material conditions of Ethiopia were. And um people sometimes over exaggerate this connection, but it is generally there. But the the Ethiopian position um before the Ethiopian revolution is very similar to Russia before their revolution, where Ethiopia is kind of in this place where they're trying to to modernize and they're starting to become a more modern capitalist power, but they're still uh, very heavily elements of feudalism that um, prop up their economy like that. I think at the point that the Ethiopian revolution was starting to become a thing, like the like something like 70 something percent of the Ethiopian population were still like peasants working on on like straight up feudal um, land tenure systems and stuff like that. So there like even the Ethiopian labor movement at the time, there wasn't there wasn't very much of one because they just hadn't built up the industrial capacity where a larger labor movement uh, became a thing like it was that wasn't really until the 70s where there was um much of a labor movement and like onward 
So yeah, that's kind of okay. Kind of material conditions at that point. And it, so, and then the, so I guess like the students were the people who were doing like a lot of the analysis of that um, in terms of like, you know, them actually like, you know, wanting to, to figure out like, is, is this fair? Is this right? You know? Uh, and like you say, like the question of the, Eritrean people's liberation was was a huge, like it, very incendiary as well, uh, uh, topic. So was it essentially the 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 struggle of the Eritreans that like led to the to the to the rise of the student movement, or was it other things as well amongst the you know uh, uh, the issues of the time? Yeah, there were there were other things before then. So um the the essential question that's that start gets students to start asking in, uh, more radical questions and start getting radicalized is a question of poverty in ethiopia and of like this feudal feudal system so it, when the student movement um begins it really begins and students start um pro having like mass protests and stuff like that one of the major slogans that they come up with is land to the tiller which is basically but yeah, it's very self-explanatory. They're advocating for like massive land reform to return, to give the people living under this feudal system a more fair, more fair deal and more fair kind of existence. And so that, that, yeah, that's that's incredible because um, land reform is just like a massive element of you know what needs to happen everywhere, right? A lot of. Um revolutions and like anti-colonial struggles have all kind of like i mean it's like you know fanon like mentioned it over and over again about like being like the land being crucial and stuff it's like yeah i think that's like something that um i think that's like one of the things that can be like the bridge between the more liberal kind of thinking where people are like we can do okay in this system and then becoming radicalized usually it's over like you know like land stuff when it gets to the point where it's like you know that um land reform is necessary then it kind of comes i think yeah that's the point where liberals are kind of just like oh shit okay no we need we do need to do the thing <laughs> yeah it's like super annoying when you when you like i don't know people people are desperately attached to this idea that you know you can just own a thing and you can own a house you know whenever you whenever you talk to like you know liberal white people uh who are like sort of center left they'll say things like oh i can't wait to to buy a piece of land uh and farm on it and then i can escape this horrible horrible world that it's like <laughs> dude you're like engaging in this individualism um but yeah no and, and again it's like you know this is why like marx was really impassioned about the enclosure of the commons right because it is just like such a huge uh deal when it comes to like people's autonomy people's agency in terms of like working class uh, uh survival and stuff um okay that's super interesting uh anansi and um so yeah, I guess like seeing that the peasant farmers were, you know, just having such a shit time and that like landlords were fucking them over. I was doing a tiny bit of research just before the uh, uh, the show and it was like, it had like some crazy numbers, like 75% of, uh, you know, all land was like uh, uh, um, agricultural land and stuff. Oh no, hang on. Sorry, I'm getting the numbers wrong. Landless peasants lost as much as 75% of their produce to landlords, which oh. is like... Yeah, absolutely incredible. Like I'm, just, I'm just on the Wikipedia. Here. No, yeah, people lived. In, they lived in really, in really bad conditions because of because of this feudalism. And like any any attempt people made to improve these conditions or to kind of alleviate the, these these issues, like even 
even um, Hylas Selassie's own attempts at like some form of land reform that wasn't really going to do much. Like it wasn't really to help anyone anyway. But like even his small attempts at land reform and like increasing taxes on on landowners were met with just like extreme vitriol from the Ethiopian bourgeoisie. Like they they it, like at the slightest provocation that someone was going to take even a a me- measure of grain from them, they would just lose it. They would lose it. So this was a very contentious contentious issue for the Ethiopian student movement. And part of part of what galvanized the students to protest on this issue was just the complete political stagnation around it. Like uh, the, just the the Senate was completely unable to come to any agreements on what should be done. And, you know, the Ethiopian bourgeoisie is so it was so they're the only representation of Ethiopian politics at this time. So no one has any interest in actually pushing this issue along to get done, which is why in, in 1964, the students get so fed up with it that they decide to protest and take the issue, you know, directly to the emperor. Like they're literally showing up to the emperor's palace on uh, knocking on the door, like y'all need to, to do something about this now. Um, and the, the reaction from the Ethiopian state and the issue, Ethiopian bourgeoisie is just e- immediately. So like the police, you know, you know, show up and do what police do to break up this protest and are attacking and beating people. But also like the, the, the government is basically leaning on the faculty of the, of the, the schools to, to, punish the students for engaging in this activism and students are students are being dismissed from from courses or you know being dismissed from classes there's uh like student amenities like cafeterias and stuff are being closed down so students can't eat and there are a lot of there are a lot of students who rely on these different resources from the school to get by or rely on you know being able to live on campus and stuff and they're being they're intentionally being um screwed over you know the cruelty is the is the point of the situation yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, we've seen the, the similar situations happen in a bunch of different um, kind of revolutionary struggles around the world, where they because um, they kind of pick universities as being these like you know like the radical breeding grounds or whatever, which is kind of funny because it's like okay, yeah, cool. You build the universities, you introduce like the social sciences, and you teach people a bunch of those things, and all of a sudden they start going like, hey, wait, actually, we can you know, like we can, we can change things, you know? No, exactly. But, um, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. From, the, from the jump, from the jump there, Ethiopian state is like, like Haile Selassie from the jump that they're creating these colleges is very aware that student agitation is like a thing that could and probably will become a problem. So like, like, like the, the first person becomes the, the Dean of students, like Haile Selassie literally tells him like to keep the students out of trouble, like make sure, make sure they're not doing anything. The the first time that there's you know, like even a whiff of issues basically during this this there's this thing in 1962 called the College Day celebration where you know they have like sports and and different kind of games and stuff like that and they have like poetry competitions and stuff and uh, during the poetry competition one of the students um, and Haile Selassie is there personally at these events one of the students reads a poem a poem he that he's written that basically discusses poverty in Ethiopia. And is asking like is like asking the question of like what do Ethiopian people des- deserve like how are these people being treated and Haile Selassie is so pissed about this that he never comes back he, he <laughs> never comes back he literally <laughs> he never comes back and the Cringe. next year it's even worse like even more students are writing are writing about this subject and are like are just starting to ask these very important questions so basically the moment that students start asking these questions, everyone starts wanting to ask these questions. And the EDM government is. They're, they're so, like, Haile Selassie doesn't even want to show his face on campus anymore. 
Incredible. Um, now, uh, you'll have to forgive me because obviously like the reason we've got you on uh, to speak about this is because you've done a two-hour video about this uh, and you're intensely educated uh, on this particular topic. But uh, all I really have in terms of like, you know, within reach at the moment is the Wikipedia page. And it's uh, definitely not looking like the two hours worth of material on, on the Wikipedia page. In fact, it's pretty fucking short. Uh, and it seems to say that like the Ethiopian revolution uh, was because some military rulers of the Ethiopian army uh, comprised of like, you know, various different ideological uh, 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 you know, uh, I guess uh, viewpoints. They they actually united to create socialist reforms, which like doesn't make a lot of sense. But I, I wonder if you could expand upon that a little bit or um, debunk it. Yeah. So this is this is <laughs> the Wikipedia page definitely does not do this the uh, the justice at all because it's it's very complicated situation, but. Essentially, there's um, in 1974, there's like a, a large amount of famine in Ethiopia that's um, affecting people. That's affecting people, and then on top of that, there are like there are several student organizers that are that are killed by the police at this time, and there are also like there are prison prison revolts going on. So like the Ethiop- like think the conditions of the revolutionary upswell in Ethiopia it's basically become so intense that the government is having a hard time maintaining control and is realizing that like we're going to have to make concessions if any of us are going to going to stay in power. So it basically starts with the um the the military coming to coming together and kind of forming their own internal internal government and then and then using you know their like military military power military force to depose like they they arrest a, um a lot of like politicians and stuff like that. Like it basically in order to kind of kind of calm calm things down before it gets completely out of control. Haile Selassie tries to issue some reforms and he he removes um the one of the prime ministers and replaces him with someone who's like more liberal, trying to kind of assuage all of these different problems that are going on, but it doesn't really work. And the military the military ends up taking over and they depose him. So basically this mil this military um trying to think of what the the word it's like the 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 word the acronym uses PMAC, a provisional military administrative council. But um, the word that they use in Harvard is the is the dirge, dirge. Um, and basically the dirge, uh, the dirge is military council. They they kind of when they when they take over, they're kind of a blank slate in terms of politics. There are people, there are some of them who are radicalized in the left way, some of them who are just typical right wing nationalists. Some who are like liberal in the middle, but there's not really much political cohesion there. And okay, this this, <laughs> this is such a long story. It's very it's very complicated. Student politics become very important during the Ethiopian Revolution because basically, um, during the during the student movement, uh, one of the student leaders who is very who is very important is the student named Senaliki. And um, but at a, at a certain point, basically after the Eritrean revolution, after the Eritrean Revolution um, start starts and they're struggling for independence um this basically the thing that they're calling the national question becomes really important to student politics and ethiopian politics people are basically asking asking the questions like what does the, uh, the term nation mean what does nationality mean like what what do the different nations of ethiopia deserve how do how are we supposed to relate to each other and stuff like that right so the question kind of becomes this split in the student movement between people who are saying we want an ethiopian state 
that has levels of local autonomy for these people, but they're still they're still part of the Ethiopian state. We're still one, you know, unified country. And there's people who are go who are basically going, well, no, these people have the right to to secession. They have the they have the right to be their own nations, right? And this this line, the difference between them on the policy policy wise is really minuscule because ultimately, like none of the parties who end up ruling really push for this actual answer to the national question, which is part of the reason we have some of the problems we have now in Ethiopia. But um, this split on this question becomes a really, really big factor of the Ethiopian student movement. And Sine Liki, he ends up on the more Ethiopian like unification side of it. And he kind of is ousted by the student movement by, it's it's kind of funny because the, all of these different factions uh, within the student movement are are rivals to each other, but they kind of come together to oust um, Sine Liki out of Ethiopian student politics because they just fucking hate him. He just sucks. Um, but once he's kind of ousted from Ethiopian politics um, and, and then this revolution happens and the military takes over, he realizes, oh, if I go talk to these people first, I can have I, I have another way into Ethiopian politics. So that's what he does. So he is the first person from the student movement to basically walk into the Dirge's offices and be like, look, you guys need politics. I have politics. Let's have a conversation. He's a Marxist Leninist um, at this point. So he starts um, becoming one of the main political advisors to the Dirge. Um, and that's kind of that's kind of where some of their more their more socialist elements are coming from. And um, one of the people who basically um, there are there are two organizations, two two student organizations forming within the Ethiopian student movement that are going to become uh, a major part of Ethiopian politics later. So like uh, Sine Liki has his own faction off in the corner, we're talking to the military called the Proletarian League. But within the student movement, there's um, my song, which is, or which is um, the All Ethiopian Socialist Movement, and there's um, the EPR EPRP, the Ethiopian People's Revolution. EP, sorry, EPRP, EP, Ethiopian People's Revolutionary Party, right? So these are the two factions. And basically, there is like a very intense rivalry between these two factions and, and most specifically between two of their leading members. So um, the All Ethiopian Socialist Movement, one of their leading members is this dude named Haile Fida. And the um, EPRP, one of their leader, leading members is this dude named Berhane Mescoreta. These two dudes hate each other. They can't stand each other. They're seen like arguing, screaming with, uh, at each other on campus all the time. They do not like each other, but they work together to oust Sine Liki from Ethiopian politics. And then there, they, and then after that happens and the revolution takes, takes place and stuff, their two organizations are basically trying to get in talks to join back up and reunify the student movement and work together again. But Sine Liki, but no, sorry, not Sine Liki, but, um, Haile Fida seeing that Sine Liki has gained political power by just talking to the dirge is like, well, I don't really need to unify with you, actually. So he start. He basically goes to Sine Liki, the dude that he just, the dude that he just screwed out of politics entirely. He comes crawling back to this man, talking about some, uh, like trying to get um his ear in with the military dictatorship as well. So they start working together. And Masan basically cuts off its talks with the EPRP to join up with them. And Berhane Mescoreta is forced to go into hiding because the EPRP's activities become illegal. Um, and I feel like the thing, the important thing to to point out with all of this is that all of these different factions are are Marxist Leninist, at least in name. They're all kind of they're all using a lot of the same terminology and stuff, and so, to the point where sometimes their writings, uh, their their writings, the differences between them are so semantic that it's like two two word differences that people are and nothing changes it. <laughs> yeah, it's, it, it, it's 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 pretty wild. But yeah, that's kind of where the the socialist elements of the dirge start coming from. And later on in the revolution, um, the basically 
Sinead Leakey and Haile Fida start orbiting kind of around this dude named Mengistu Haile uh, Mariam, who becomes one of the main leaders of the Dirge. And as he progressively makes more and more power grabs to make himself the sole leader of, of the Dirge, they're kind of hovering around him, providing him with um, political counsel and like helping him to to rise to power within this structure. But then once he once he is in power and then he gets he basically um, starts talking with the Soviet Union and gets Soviet back and he ends up purging Marson and the proletarian league from the dirge. Um, and like de- he like declares them like enemies to the revolution and has them killed, um, which is it's it's very frustrating. The, the 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 sad irony of this is that Haile Fida actually he builds all of these political structures for the dirge and then ends up dying in a dirge prison next to Brahani Mescaloreta, the dude who he's been fighting this whole time and who's like his most bitter rival. They end up dying on the same day in the same jail after almost a decade of the two of them basically organizing armies of young Ethiopians to fight and die over their over their beat. Yeah, that's fucked. That's real fucked. Um, but I guess the upshot is is that now, um, well, not now, but at this point in time, the Dirge has enacted some of these socialist policies that are like, is it was there any um, actual land reform that went on? Yeah, like, what so were, yeah, yeah. This is, this is where this is where like the conversation gets so gets so complicated because like there were genuine socialist elements within the dirge there there i hate that this that these words rhyme because it's so it's so thematically off they were purged <laughs> by the dirge um later on toward the end of the revolution but yeah there were the uh genuine socialist elements in the dirge and they they did a lot of um a lot of work to initiate policy reforms and and things like that i think the thing that they are that they're kind of the most well known for um in terms of their like positive their positive outputs is uh the Zemecha, which is it, it it's called an educational development uh campaign but that's kind of inaccurate it's it's more of a, a public a public work like public works public public development campaign like they're also they're you know sending people out to go and you know work working in schools and provide education and stuff to people but they're also doing things like building bridges they're um you know vaccinating people and things like that so at this point, there are like one, I think they, 1.2 million people are vaccinated against diseases like smallpox, malaria, and tuberculosis. Um, they like plant 2 million trees, uh, across Ethiopia. They, um, provide 1 million people with like basic health education and stuff like that. They build almost like 300 clinics, um, across Ethiopia. So they do, they do, um, a lot of, a lot of different things. And then one of the, one of the other big things they do is have this literacy program where they're basically, at this point, like the the vast majority of the population population of Ethiopia can't read, so it becomes one of the one of the priorities of the socialist elements within the dirge is expanding literacy to other people. So they're then and they're not even just they're not even just going out and teaching people to read in like one particular language. This program spans fifteen different languages across Ethiopia to the point that some of the languages that they're they're starting to teach people to read in, they don't actually really have developed written language written forms for them yet. So part of this process is them literally developing the written form of some of these languages. It's it's, it's really interesting. It's really interesting. And this is all part of their part of this is all part of their the educational campaign, this whole this whole public campaign. Yeah, this this is absolutely incredible because um, just just learning about like how you know revolutions, no matter how like messy and complicated they are, um, will a lot of the time have a 
you know, very sort of similar outcome, like some similar stuff. Because the thing that you're saying about um, Ethiopians uh, learning to read and stuff, that's very similar to what happened in Cuba, uh, you know. And I think you mentioned in your video, like I just know from you, uh, you know, mentioned in, in, in the description that like um, Fidel Castro and Che Guevara were like, they sort of like, I don't know, spoke to some people in Ethiopia or something? Yeah, I don't know. Is, is that like a thing that that's went a, Yeah, that's a complicated situation. So basically, um, one, I was, I, I made a mistake in the video that I, I meant to edit out, but I was editing at like 3 a.m. and I was tired. Um, but um, Che Guevara wasn't in Ethiopia at the, at the, at this point in history, he had died. But this is basically during the, um, the war between Ethiopia and um, Somalia, 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 Somalia over the Ogaden region, um, which was uh, it was a it was a whole thing. It kind of became part of Cold War politics, and there was some soft U.S. backing of Somalia, um, and like the USSR is backing Ethiopia at this point. Um, the, the the USSR was backing backing Somalia before this point, but as these tensions between Ethiopia and Somalia start to boil over, and Somalia is kind of not really willing to come to the table and talk, the, um, the USSR ends up kind of pulling their support and then they end up getting some soft backing from the US. But basically, um, Fidel Castro didn't just visit Ethiopia. They sent um, several thousand soldiers from Cuba to actually help um, Ethiopia deal with this solution. So they sent um, a bunch of a bunch of people to, I'm trying to see, I have the, I have the number written down. I'm trying to like look at my <laughs> notes real quick. But they sent several thousand soldiers to to Ethiopia to help kind of um, bolster their eastern border and help them deal with this this war that's going on because of this because of the whole Cold War, Cold war politics of it all and stuff. So yeah, that's incredible. Wow. Um, but yeah, no, it, it, interesting that that kind of like lines up there anyway. Um, just in terms of like you know what uh, the dirge did for uh ethiopia's like literacy rates and stuff like that uh like really 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 awesome stuff um so that's really good now um i'm guessing that the 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 revolution doesn't really like uh you know in terms of like uh i guess like the dirge being in power i guess it doesn't really last that long because as you said uh that kind of fell apart when the ussr um dissolved right yeah, so basically, uh, the Dirge takes power in 1974, and throughout their entire rule, there are a number of different forces fighting against them. The, um, the basically when when the, when the Dirge takes over, and it kind of becomes apparent that they're not going to end the war in Eritrea to reclaim Eritrea, um, the EPL, the EPLF, and the ELF, um, which are the two the two forces in, in Eritrea fighting, they continue their fight against them. Um, this is part of what splits the student movement as the, the EPRP ends up um, backing the Eritrea Liberation Front as well. Um, the TPLF is also is also fighting at this point. Um, so they're fighting a lot of a lot of different um, forces at the time that are all that are all like that are all like at least nominally left left wing that are kind of that are kind of opposing them over their what they're what they're viewing as like Ethiopia's imperialist policies toward these different nations in Ethiopia. You have like. Um, the Aroma Liberation Front is another group that's fighting, and basically in uh, in 1991, um, the TPLF forms a co forms all of these different groups into a coalition. This is the EPRP is not included in this because uh, the TPLF has essentially destroyed the EPRP at this point because they were also fighting each other, um, and the the TPLF kind of destroys them in the. Um, just kind of destroys them in the early 80s in Asmara. And the, EP the EPRP is, well, is still around. They're still around to this day. 
but um, they're kind of forced to forced out of the out of the war by this. And the TPLF forms a coalition with um, the um, EP, EPLF and the OLF and some of the other different forces that are fighting the um, Ethiopian Democratic Front, and they form the EPRDF. And then at that kind that coalition kind of topples the dirge as the dirge. The dirge is kind of at, at this point um, propped up a lot by Soviet military aid. So once that's no longer available to them, they're not really able to sustain their fight against the EPRDF um, as much. And the EPRDF has been fighting for a long time at this point. So like, yeah, that's like, actually like a huge okay. thing that sent like ripples all around the world when um, that uh, Soviet aid to yeah. other groups. I mean, that's like literally like um, it was because. Uh, you know, like we talk, uh, a lot of people have been talking a lot of the last couple of days about Hamas getting funding from, you know, Israel when it first started. But um, that alone wasn't like responsible for their rise. It was, um, there were a bunch of like left-wing groups, like, you know, like really like good left-wing communist groups operating in Palestine. And a lot of them were getting funding from, you know, the Soviets and stuff to kind of fight back. And it was like, so when that funding dropped and that collapsed, and that's when the right-wing forces kind of like took up that power vacuum there. So it's like, yeah, it's, it's, and it's, I mean, you know, like a lot of um, like Soviet internationalist projects have always like stressed, you know, like, like critical support and like any kind of funding and everything for other socialist projects around the world and all these kind of things. And it's like, it's wild that like, you know, like that, 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 that was so impactful. And then, you know, consequently the loss of it was, you know, so impactful yeah. as well. No, if I can take a moment to connect the, the Ethiopian struggle to the Palestinian struggle, the, um, the, the Eritrean Liberation Front, the Eritrean People's Liberation Front and, um, the EPRP, they all received, um, support from, um, the, uh, from different Palestinian, Palestinian communist forces. I have the, I think pulled up right here so I can read it. Um, but yeah, at the first Congress of the EPLF, um, they had representatives from the DP, the DL, DFLP and from the PFLP, the, um, Front for Liberation of Palestine and the Democratic Front for Liberation of Palestine that were there, um, helping them organize, organize this and, um, supporting them. And that, um, that's not just for the EPLF, the, the Palestinian, the Palestinian, um, movement for liberation, they, uh, they, those people were very involved in, the struggle for liberation in Ethiopia and um, like the core core leadership of the EPRP received training in arms in Palestine that became critical to them, you know, overthrowing, overthrowing Khalid Selassie. And um, very, like, it was a very similar reaction from the Ethiopian state um, to how Israel's reacting now to um, the Eritrean situation where they, the Haile Selassie's regime, they were, and, and the dirge after them also were very, were very insistent on painting all the, all the people fighting for liberation in Eritrea as like, Muslim extremists and as like anti-Christian forces manipulated by like foreign Arab states and stuff. So like the, the, the racist narrative that was constructed against Palestinians is very similar, um, almost the same to the racist narrative constructed against Eritreans to stop their movement for liberation. So there's a lot of connection between what's going on now and what happened in, um, Eritrea and in Ethiopia at this point. Thank you for pointing that out. That's super interesting and super sad. Shitty. <laughs> very <laughs> shitty. <laughs> There was, um, we were also talking a little bit earlier about, um, the, uh, cause there was, you know, the period when, um, Israel was, uh, repatriating, you know, well, yeah, like repatriating, uh, Jewish people from all around the world. And there was like, uh, it was a 
good chunk of um, Ethiopian Jews that were then brought to Israel and then kind of um, treated pretty horribly as well. And I know that that was also, um, I've read before about how that was also tied into a lot of um, kind of anti-communist rhetoric. Like it was like a thing like you're not going to be safe in Ethiopia because, you know, the communists are going to do this or that or whatever like that. And then like, and they go to them, like, yeah, up. transplanted to Israel and then have to suffer all the things and worse that they were told yeah. that communists were going to do to them, which is like, yeah, just wild. Yeah, it's, 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 it's absurd. It's very absurd. Yeah. Um, um, yeah. Yeah. So going back to, um, yeah, what happened with the, with the dirge and like, uh, the sort of like, I guess the collapse of the dirge um what was the 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 sort of like i guess because it's it's super interesting that there were like all these like um you know pretty interesting uh pretty like you know viable and productive social socialist reforms um to a bunch of policies in in ethiopia at the time but then as you say like they a lot of them were purged purged by the dirge um and um then after that, like, what was the, what was, what was the, the, the outcome for Ethiopians after 1991 when the dirge was, was kind of like, you know, ousted? Yeah. So it's, 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 um, a difficult situation, right? I mean, like when the state has kind of just collapsed and been, you know, taken over by other forces. So the, at this point, the TPL, the TPLF, um, while they, they they kind of in their public statements at this point in like 1991 they're saying like oh yeah we're we're we aren't strictly uh, Marxist Leninist anymore but we still have like Marxist elements or whatever but their coalition is kind of in power and it takes it takes a while before Ethiopians actually get real democracy like there there are there are protests and stuff of um, election processes for years in advance they're also um before Eritrea gets like its full actual independence there's a small borders border war between Eritrea and the new ruling party of Ethiopia um that ends up being it ends up being mediated by the UN and Eritrea essentially uh becomes their own nation after this but yeah so the the by this by this point um with by this point within Ethiopia People, people are still, they're still living un, under some of the fuel conditions, but there's been a bit of a, of a progression. And there's kind of, uh, once again, like this new government is kind of taking up the same, the same project that both previous states before it are taking of trying to, trying to modernize Ethiopia and bring some sort of, um, centralized stability to this, to this state. Um, and this kind of, this, it, by, 20 around 2015 um 2013 to 2015 there it starts being uh, pretty large protests to bring reform to this this new government that make it more democratic and then those democratic reforms paved the way for Abiy Ahmed to be elected to prime minister um him and his his party was kind of what kind of yeah what kind of platform was uh, was he running on then um, I know one of the one of the sig- significant things about his election is that he was Oromo, so Oromo, one of the peoples within Ethiopia, and um, they're like they're one of they're I think they're one of the main groups that um, have a lot a lot of history of land alienation uh, with the Ethiopian state, especially like, um, after 
after the conquest of, of Menelik II, when he kind of built the centralized Ethiopian state that Haile Selassie comes to inherit, there um, a lot of Oromo lands are are annexed or um, they're alienated from them. Um, a lot of them are given out to to um, different political figures as rewards to you know broker support and stuff. And Haile Selassie also also does that. Um, for example, Addis Ababa is the, the capital city of Ethiopia, and that city is actually built on stolen Oromo land. Um, is one example. So his so um, like land reform, land, like those kind of land reforms, and like kind of more more a more fair deal for the different nationalities when he, within Ethiopia was kind of one of the big questions. One of the big questions he would that people had for him, um, and also trying to trying to kind of bring a solution to some of the struggles that Oromo people have faced within Ethiopia as well. And I think his party's also was also like running on a socialist platform as well. Um, which I think the the majority of of political parties that ever have any measure of power in Ethiopia at this point are all some are all some measure of socialist at least Okay, not. so like that's super interesting because I think one of the things that is always like because the USSR isn't really, I guess, applicable because Russia I, I, I think its unique amount of power that it held caused it to, you know, a, a lot of people within the USSR to, to become corrupt uh, towards the end of, of its uh, existence, as it were. And so now you have things like Putin, um, you know, uh, uh, various different, like, horrific uh, neoliberal uh, uh, policies and governments and stuff like that, not very much for the people. But then when you look at, like, places like, you know, where socialism has persisted after a revolution, like Ethiopia, for example, um, you know, also Cuba, where, like, you know, arguably, like, the revolution is still a thing, you know, like, everyone always calls the government the revolution kind of thing. Um, it's really interesting to see like, that, like, those things persist, like, these these sort of, like, smaller revolutions where, um, you know, they weren't focused on on a world stage. Although, I guess you could argue Cuba, Cuba is uh, kind of focused on, like, quite quite frequently by the U.S. Yeah. <clears throat> but, um, so, super interesting. So, even to this day, they have, like, socialist, uh, 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 you know, policies, socialist uh, uh, politicians and stuff like that. Um, and of course, you mentioned that the 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 there was the um, genocide of the was it the T Tigrayan people, Eritrean people? Yes. I can't remember. Uh, yeah, the Tigray, uh, Tigray genocide. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you want to talk with us a little bit about that and like what what kind of like shaped that in in Ethiopia and where that came from? Yeah, yeah. So basically, it it kind of. It all kind of starts when, um, in in uh, 2015, 2016, when Abiy Ahmed uh, starts to, you know, take power. So after he takes power and he kind of reorganizes the political structure of Ethiopia, he um, kind of starts his own his own political his own political party that's also a coalition party made up of a lot of the same the same groups from the previous one. The reason why the reason why they did it was because a lot of people felt that the previous iteration of the state was built to favor Tigrayans over other people. So the goal with this reorganization was to make a more equal kind of kind of setup. But basically after this after this happens, um there's a lot of there's a lot of frustration from uh Tigrayans and from the TPLF specifically over over what's taken place. 
So basically in 20, in 2020, these tensions kind of boil over because COVID forces um, elections to be postponed. And the TPLF, um, when the, when elections are postponed, the TPLF kind of jumps on this and they kind of claim that this is like an anti-democratic move to, to like stop elections. Um, and the, they're trying, they're claiming that the Prosperity Party, which is the party that the Ahmed has created, is trying to do this undemocratic move to hold on to power and prevent elections from pushing them out of power. So they basically, in, resp- in response to this, they attack an Ethiopian military base um, in Tigray, and that kind of sparks the war. And it kind of, it kind of just spirals out of control for there, because there are like, there are acts of, of ethnic cleansing on both sides of this um, military. And there is like, when the whole situation unfolds, there's kind of this vibe from from um, the U.S. when they're talking about it that they're only really they're only really interested in involvement is to like is as like a, some like Cold War with China type stuff. Like the the U.S. is like is going like why isn't China um, getting involved in the situation and mediating this? But meanwhile, the U.S. is also like low key selling weapons to both sides of the yeah, world. Yeah. It, it, it's, Same it's old story. Ridiculous. But yeah, this this war kind of kind of spirals. Just spirals out of control and, be, and becomes a genocide, especially as um, Abiy Ahmed kind of uses the resources of the Ethiopian state to cut off Tigray from uh, basically any form of resources or like food aid from other nations. So like Tigrayan civilians are like being starved, um, and like meanwhile the TPLF is like going into villages and like slaughtering people who don't speak Tigrinya and stuff. So it's like there's a whole there's a whole thing going on. But this war basically. It ends um, in November of last year, and they finally they finally reach peace agreement agreements, um, and the Ahmed finally um, begins to allow aid to go into Tigray. So there are still kind of tensions um, right now, and but as as of now, it looks like there is a kind of shaky peace. But yeah, there's like there's also there's like other conflicts kind of starting to boil, like between the OLF and the um, um, Amhara Liberation Fronts. Um, a bit, so it's just a yeah, it's a very what's the word? Um, very messy situation, situation. (laughs) yeah, yeah, yeah. it's snappy, yeah. Obviously, that's uh, yeah, it it really, really, really sucks. Um, but the I think, um, yeah, I guess like the, the learning the whole history is like super important to, I guess, understanding where this current situation is coming from kind of thing like again like you say like um you know the aroma peoples having like a, a you know a, a leader that represents them after being like you know so uh what's the word uh, oppressed and um and then that like a, a similar thing but then happening to to Grians and uh as a result of all this other stuff and it's just like jesus christ like just so much stuff going on but um again i think it comes uh down to like um you know we 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 have it like so much and and it's where we always we always talk about how things are exported uh to places in the imperial periphery and it's like you know again like a, a country that has been oppressed and and fed by colonization has you know resulted in you know having some horrific uh, uh you know nationalistic i guess elements to it um you know it's 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 just vile but like of course the these are like attitudes that could you know easily come from uh colonizing powers like i always think about uganda uganda uh where like the first the first man uh to be sentenced to death for for homosexuality aggravated homosexuality they're calling it um is now 
currently waiting a death sentence um, for that right now. And and again, Uganda before it was colonized had the bisexual king, like widely documented that the king had you know <laughs> male and female concubines. It was very normal to be queer, very normal to be LGBTQIA plus uh, in Africa until colonialism happened. Um, and in terms of like in terms of like that kind of inference how much would you say uh you know that like colonialism affected what was going on in ethiopia yeah i mean i think it had a huge effect uh, i mean ethiopia has this reputation um that they've never been colonized that they like take a lot of pride in and that's that's true to an extent but um even without having been directly colonized in necessarily the traditional sense that we understand like they were still they were they were elements of colonial dealings and how the British dealt with Ethiopia after they um, helped them win back their independence from Italy, from Italy. They're like there. I mean, obviously, like the Italian invasions of Ethiopia and the brief amount of time they held power there are like colonization. But the basically the the entire attempts to construct the Ethiopian state, a centralized Ethiopian state to bring all of these nations into this one particular way of existing has is a response to colonialism basically when when italians invaded in the late 1800s and tried to take over ethiopia menelik um relied on you know working with all the other different nations in ethiopia to push these people out and then his his ongoing project um during that and afterward to build a centralized ethiopian state was basically it kind of was his attempt to colonize ethiopia before um the colonizers did and a lot of the deal, that's why a lot of the dealings with these different peoples in Ethiopia, in Ethiopia are very colonized. Like, um, for one, for one example, um, under Haile Selassie, um, Amharic is the, the like central language of Ethiopia. And people who don't speak that language, who like speak other languages aren't allowed to teach them in schools. You know, like you have, you have what are very, very typical colonial dealings that you would see in like settler colonial nations or in other nations being done in Ethiopia by Ethiopians to other Ethiopians. And that's kind of that's kind of where some of the problem of discussing colonialism in Ethiopia comes from, because Ethiopia has, quote unquote, technically never been colonized, partly because Ethiopia is sometimes the colonizer. And yeah, if you talk to, you know, peoples within the Horn of Africa, within Somalia and the Ogden region and, you know, um, Oromo lands and in different in different places, they'll they'll kind of tell that same story. Yeah. And 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 again, like you say, like that a, a attempt to colonize, like um, you know, just I guess, like as <laughs> I I don't even know how you'd call that, like you know, self colonization. Um, you know, that in itself is a response to colonialism, right? I'm I'm sort of like reminded by the the notion that like uh, white people in Europe have absolutely no idea what are like indigenous history truly is because it's been fucking destroyed because of like you know roman empire and uh various other like you know invasions and stuff like that um you know and it's like essentially we're like um colonized but also the colonizers it's kind of like sounds kind of similar you know yeah like the 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 project of statecraft and of like of like building a homogenous identity under one state is like a colonial process that has to fold all these different peoples into into one group like even this is a discussion um i have sometimes with um indigenous comrades where they talk about how uh, in mexico the state has kind of appropriated indigenous indigenous identity and like aztec identity 
as as part of its uh, as part of its narrative to maintain maintain control in a way that's erased other indigenous peoples, that's erased other indigenous languages and stuff, and has has ended up aiding in the settler colonial project of you know destroying the history and the culture of indigenous peoples within within. Yeah. I definitely saw that um, traveling through Mexico and, and talking to people and learning about things there, this idea. Um, and it kind of re- reminds me of um, over here, we have this like amalgamated, um, what they call like the Kiwi identity. And it's, um, you know, it like takes like the best things from Maori and like the kind of like, just all these other things and like kind of like creates this modern, like unified thing where you know so that the government can go like oh we're all one we're all this together or whatever and it just kind of like brushes over all of the bad stuff or also like I don't know you know like it um there's one thing that I always think about is like the tradition of like radical particularly Maori protest movements that have at the time being like super maligned but then have been kind of vindicated by you know like how things have progressed over the years and that being like this thing where they're like this was us this was you know the kiwis we did this and it's like no it was like a very small (laughs) group of people (laughs) that were like almost universally hated at the time maligned in the media and stuff like that but then it's like you know it was like usually it was like this was particularly like you know like poor indigenous you know like queer people and stuff and then it's like no this is this is all of us now um, what what comes to my mind when you say that tim is whenever i see the all blacks play and they do the hacker oh yeah 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 Yeah, it's um that's another thing it's like so that's something that like you know we always talk about like how you know like white people love a good hacker they love like all that kind of stuff but it's like they don't want to actually engage with um like what it means or like even like the tradition behind it and like yeah it's I don't know it is it is frustrating it's like this thing you know be absorbing it into the national identity and that also kind of like the idea of us being like one nation also kind of like it um it helps to work against like things like um you know like native like land claims and like um you know like even just like the idea that there is like our founding document like the treaty like kind of says very specific things about you know like um about like the crown and like Europeans and then there's and Maori and stuff like that and it's kind of like this thing where it just kind of papers over a lot of that and get, goes like, we don't need to worry about that because we're all one people now. So, so it's a bit of a tangent, but um, yeah, I've, I noticed the same thing happening in Mexico where it was like, you know, there were like a lot of people, like I saw um, there were a lot of people wearing like t-shirts and hoodies and stuff where they would say like, you know, it'd be like, I'm not Mexican. I'm, and then they would have like the name of like, you know, their like local indigenous group and stuff where they'd be like, I'm not, not Hispanic, not Latino, you know, nothing like that. Like, this is what I am, you know? And um, I thought that was, um, that was super interesting because um, it's not even a discussion that I had really even known, like I had known about, like I hadn't even thought about it. Like, oh yeah, of course, there's like this long history of, you know, like colonization and the absorption of different, I guess, like cultural groups and stuff into, um, yeah like the wider political project or whatever yeah state yeah. Ob- state obfuscation 
so yeah like obviously this is like an absolutely amazing story and like um tell us about like the thought process of you like you know starting out and 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 doing this video because it is it's such a long video it's absolutely incredible like i'm I'm desperate to to find some time to watch it yeah Um, yeah what was what was the thought process behind you like starting off doing this oh man okay so Basically, when the the whole um, uh, Ethiopia Tigray war broke out in 2020, I was I was very curious about the situation and what was going on, especially because um, Western media has a tendency to do this thing with foreign conflicts, especially in Africa, to reduce it to like tribal conflicts between tribes of people. And I'm like, these are nations of like millions of people with like languages yeah. and complex identities and like their own art. Like like is this is like these are not just tribes like the, the I, I hate that term because it makes it sound like there's like 50 people fighting like in a mud pit somewhere like it's a very racist conception of what's happening that the western media is conjuring conjuring up when they talk about what's happening so i i got kind of frustrated by that and i wanted to to have a better understanding of what was going on and the more i like looked into these different groups and i realized like there's like a there's like a history of like a whole revolution here that is not told i got more curious especially because like I'll, I'll see sometimes where there'll be um There'll be some people who will like they'll have like posters or flyers or whatever that'll be like um the Ethiopian Revolution from 1974 to uh, 1978 or whatever, and then I would be looking at the the history and everything, and they'll be like, well, wait, these groups are still in power for like this amount of time, blah blah blah. Like, what's I, I'm like, well, there's I feel like there's a detail missing here. That's like there's a story that's implied by the way people are not talking about the story, if that makes sense. So I got very into into the subject, and I kind of. I made. I started with making a video about Ethiopia that was um, kind of just the like pre-revolution history. So I got kind of um, just kind of into like like how like Haile Selassie's um, reign, like his whole his how he came to power. Um, I got in like uh, Ethiopia during World War II and like the post World War period. And that first video, which is like fifty minutes, it stops right as the Eritrean struggle for liberation begins. So then the next video um, ended up. I like I realized after finishing that video and like starting to to as I was finishing that video and starting to get into the next the next things I would want to talk about like I'm going to have to not only am I going to have to split this up but it's going to be a very long project because I I, I was like reading and they're like oh yeah the Ethiopian student movement led to the whole revolution and I'm like and and then the sources would like not give any more information on the students and I'm like okay well I have to know what's going on here before I can it, it was this endless cycle of like oh I have to know this before I can talk about this and then I have to know this before I can talk about that and it just kept going and kept going and kept going it's just like a very dense very dense topic yeah and it seems so dense as well um yeah it's always you see this so much um with with every single kind of like i i do want to touch on the the western media you know style of reporting thing because you, as you said rightfully so it's uh extremely racist it, they they're attempting to conjure conjure images at least in the uk here uh of things like uh you know zulu like the film zulu where mm-hmm. uh you know the british redcoats are surrounded by you know what they would call savage africans and and it's just like such a fucked uh you know uh, uh sort of like um it's 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 iconography right it's iconography that makes people go right oh okay like i i've categorized what people like that are like in my head so when someone refers to it that's what i go to in my head and that's just what they're trying to appeal to um and it does so much of of a of a of a bad job 
uh of really representing like you know african nations uh not just like like you say not just like the state of ethiopia but like the nations within the state like the different ethnicities like the different you know uh, uh just all the different struggles that go on within that like it's such a, a vast you know and again like the size of africa like the sheer size of africa is something that is really like understated yeah, uh, when it when it comes to like white people's understanding, like you know, white Western imperial core understandings, um, yeah. like, like if, if, if we're talking about like Ethiopia in, in itself, it's huge. Yeah, Ethiopia by itself is like almost the size of the entire like Midwestern United States. Yeah, like it, it, yeah. it's huge. It's a huge country. Yeah, just to to, to sort of like you know build it down. It it would literally be like saying. Uh, that about the midwest of, of the united states it's like oh yeah there's a like you you know if there's some kind of like civil war that breaks out in america or something like that and then they'll be reporting on it oh yeah it's just a disagreement between families just disagreement between tribes you know it's like yeah. what? what are you talking about um you know and um yeah. again i think that a lot of that obfuscation comes from and again like the obfuscation that you experienced in like hearing about this revolution and like well what's actually happened yeah that it, it goes against you know colonialist imperialist uh capitalist interests because yeah. if they were re if it was really there for everybody to see like the, the the actual thing that happened it would be like oh right okay yeah no they rose up against um you know a monarchistic uh, uh imperialist sort of you know force and em employed a bunch of socialist reforms that made people's lives better <laughs> yeah no, like the 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 way that the, that the way people talk about this completely misses the complexity of the politics. It's so it's so frustrating because it's fascinating. Like like the student politics of the of the Ethiopian Revolution are fascinating, and the the it's it's like I, I don't know understand why there's not a movie about this because at times the story is very dramatic. Like again, you have these two bitter rivals in Halefida and Berhane Mescoreta who end up dying in the same prison. Like that that in and of itself is a story, and it's a very intense. A very intense and very real, very tragic story of like. Human yeah, that's like if you put it in a movie, that'd be like that's too on the nose, you know? Like yeah, that never happens. yeah, literally. Like, like I, if, if, there some of the things that happen in the Ethiopian Revolution. Like, if I were the editor of the person who wrote this, I would be like, "You're a hack and a fraud. Don't ever write it." <laughs> <laughs> you're, 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 this is so ham-fisted. Like, it's crazy. Like, there's a like one of my favorite favorite. It's a it's a completely crazy story of the Ethiopian Revolution. But basically, there is a um. There's a point where there there's a purge going on at the imperial palace of some of the people within the dirge, and the one of the people whose job it is is to investigate people to be purged gets so fed up with the killing that he basically he basically goes to the office of one of the dudes who's a leader of the dirge and just shoots him, and like just, just <laughs> he literally I have this I have the story written down because it's just it's just crazy. But this dude he basically. He is, he just gets fed up. He walks to the, um, to the security guard because he tries to leave. He tries to leave and the dude tells him like, oh, man, guess you said no one can leave the palace right now. So he gets fed up. He has, he tells the security guard, okay, come with me. We're going to go to the, this dude's office. I think, um, let me see. I think his name was Daniel Aspa. Mm. Let me see. And what was this guy like yeah. a bureaucrat or like a state official yeah. or? Yeah, yeah, he was a, he was like the, one of the lead investigators for the, for the dirge. Um, right. Yeah, he was one of the lead investigators for the dirge. So he basically he basically goes to the uh, to the office of like the right hand man to Mengistu and like shoots him, and then he he um, shoots the security guard that brought him to the office. 
And then he leaves the office. And as he's walking down the hall, Sine Leaky, the dude we mentioned um, before, wrong place, wrong time, is just coming down the stairs. And the dude sees him and is like, oh, well, I might as well shoot you too. And then he barricades himself in the in one of the offices. And the dirge can't, they try, they have a whole shootout with him where they try to get him out of there and they can't get him out. So they just they call the, the one of the military dudes and they just drive a tank through the wall and collapse the whole room on him. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I wish i was making that up yeah, yeah like that's it, yeah this should be a film about this we should we should make the film about this we should we should yeah. make the film about this and i want to drive the tank oh, yeah. <laughs> hell yeah wow yeah no there's this yeah there's so much um that that's that's like again like i think it, it all comes back to this that that people do not uh, well, the the powers that be, the ruling elite, they don't want people to hear about these stories. Because I, I, uh, you know, at the start of this segment, I I spoke about how we always talk about how the revolution is going to come from the imperial periphery, and this is an example of of um, it, it, technically the imperial periphery. It was, of course, like an, an imperialist country, but uh, you know, it, it's it's outside of the imperial core. Um, you probably argue that the imperial core was like you know uh just coming into its own around 1970s uh towards the 80s the advent of neoliberalism right mm -hmm. and um um again like you you still like it, it is so i guess pertinent to how things are reported on nowadays like the reporting on the sri lanka uprising you know like we covered that extensively on red planet and uh you know you wouldn't hear anything remotely um you know uh, in in terms of like you know what the politics are of the people who were doing it and they you know they were all overwhelmingly leftist they were all overwhelmingly socialist they wanted socialist reforms they wanted leftist reforms um and again like um um other sort of like revolutionary things that have been going on like over the decades over the years they're just not reported on accurately because it's gonna it's gonna tell people a story that it, it's inconvenient for the ruling elite to to have them here um you know uh, they don't want it, to get any ideas yeah exactly it's it's gonna give people ideas and it's also gonna i guess it's gonna get people reading up on this stuff because there are there are of course the vast like if they did report on it accurately there's obviously the vast swathe of people who would respond in a racist reactionary manner and say oh you know it's just whatever it's those people over there and they're doing this um that's just how they are and they don't know how to govern themselves they need foreign intervention right they'll, they'll have that kind of, of an idea but then there are genuinely people who will go hang on a minute, I want to know what's going on there. And they'll read up about it and they'll be like, oh, okay, and that's what the material conditions are like for those people. Oh, this is what the export, uh, the exporting of labor is doing to people. This is what the, the you know, wealth extraction, extraction of resources is doing to people, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, yeah, it's, you know, it's the same reason they don't want us to like, they're censoring people who are talking about what's happening in Palestine right now. They don't, they don't want people to know what's really going on because if they did, most people wouldn't support it. They, they, they're, the whole apparatus of capitalist oppression relies on keeping people ignorant. And the more ways people find to get information on their own, the more they find ways to destroy it and the more that they will want to quash it. Because ultimately, 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 they very they very nakedly have no real justification for the oppression, for the violence and for the genocide. They have to make it up. Yeah, they have to, I, they have to keep us from finding out the truth about it. I think that's like such a great point. Um, <clears throat> and we see this like reflected in um, popular figures 
uh one of the one of the most embarrassing things that has happened like uh over the last few days is justin bieber posting a picture of gaza absolutely flattened and saying i stand with israel uh, um you know like just completely getting everything wrong um uh what's a face uh from the halloween movies i forget her name jamie lee curtis um posted like a bunch of gazan children yeah. crying um saying i stand with israel like you know justice for israel and it's yeah. like yeah you 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 posted gazan children like that's how big the disconnect is that's how big the um you know the 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 consent manufacturing machine works i almost question um, if it's even like accidental like right there's, there's there's a view of it where it's on purpose where they're trying to mislead people but there's also just like a very sinister view of it like like they they know that they're posting videos like pictures of of gaza being destroyed when and putting i stand with israel over it and they know what that implies like there's a very yeah. there's like they're doing it on accident because they're ignorant or are they are they really that ignorant and are, or are, are they just very intentionally telling us mask off what what they are and what they believe yeah yeah so people people show you they are you 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 believe them you know what i mean yes always the case but i definitely feel like feel like it's a question to be asked like how accidental is this for some people well i imagine i imagine what some of them are doing is they're going i don't know fucking anything about this i'm gonna get my pr agent to do this for me my social media agent or whatever because i know they all have them uh and they'll be like um yeah do a post about Israel and Gaza and stuff like what what should I say about it what should I say and the PR person is going to say oh well the money's in the both sides uh thing at the moment like you should both sides this like that should be your position and they're going okay and then they just you know they'll be like yeah "Yeah, find me some pictures of Israeli kids that are dying or something uh okay yeah yeah, great and they can't they can't find any of that (laughs) you google Israel kids dead and it just comes up with you know it'll be a story it'll be like Israel Gaza, whatever, and they wouldn't even read it. They'll just save the picture. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The sad result of it is that is that like whether it's by ignorance or in, or malice, the result is the same. Yeah, 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 yeah. And like the wild thing is, it it would be totally easy. So, say you know Justin Bieber, Jamie Lee Curtis, whatever, puts up a picture um saying you know i stand with israel and it's like a picture actually of palestinian people that it would be so easy for them to take that down and put up another thing and be like, hey, look, you know, like. Obviously, this, you know, this Hamas attack is really terrible and blah, 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 whatever. But I also stand with the Palestinian people, you know, and like, like, like they could have made a statement that says like, okay, look, you know, like, there's obviously a lot of people, you know, that are in Palestine that aren't aligned with Hamas and they're victims. And it's, those are the people whose pictures I have just posted, you know, it's like, it's, it would be so easy for someone to do something like that, but they just don't, it just disappears. It just, yeah. it's nothing, yeah. you know, it's yeah. like, I think that that kind of tells you a little bit more about like what people's intentions are, right? Yeah. Yeah. People flatten it to a discussion of like, is, does Israel have a right to defend? Do you believe Israel has a right to defend itself? Of course, Israel has a right to defend itself. That's never the question. This isn't self-defense. Yeah, that, yeah, yeah, that simply yeah. is the problem. This is if if, the, if Israel was in a situation where they were defending themselves, I would have support them unequivocally. But this is not self defense. This is colonization. Yeah, yeah. You know, and yeah, colonization yeah. is indefensible. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, bringing it back round to that to that discussion is is so important because it's like, you know, we're we're seeing this from multiple uh, you know angles right now, and just how it all like ties in together. And I think that's like our job here at red planet is you know um sophie said it like two years ago when we were trying to set this up it's seizing the means of communication right it's like having having a platform where like you can actually like 
do as good as you can to report on the things that you know are happening um, in, in you know against the, the the tidal wave of um, just horror and misinformation about that about that kind of stuff. Um, I guess just um, while we're sort of like coming to the end of the uh, uh, the segment before questions, is there anything else that you wanted to mention that we've not covered already? Um, nothing I can think of immediately off the, off the top of my head. I'm sure uh, someone will ask a question that'll make me remember it, but yeah. <laughs> Defo. Um, yeah, no, it, I think, um, yeah, it's been absolutely fascinating learning about that because, um, again, like, you know, re- revolutions come in all shapes and sizes, like different, different types of revolution, different ways that things happen. Um, you know, and I think it's also definitely really pertinent to talk about now that there are other African nations who are thrown off the shackles of like, you know, uh, I, I, I don't like using the word like actual colonialism because I don't want to, I don't want to put down like the struggle of the, you know, Eritrean peoples and, uh, you know, various ethnicities within Ethiopia, but like, you know, I guess like traditional colonialism, uh, would be a, a better, a better term for it. Um, you know, we're seeing like, uh, uh Gabon and Niger, um, alongside like, you know, a, a bunch of different African nations who are like, you know, saying fuck you to France, uh, which is just phenomenal in my opinion. Anyone who says fuck you to uh, the French government based, let's go. Um, especially as they are like, you know, again, like connecting the dots to like what's going on. Like, you know, France were basically saying, no, it is illegal to protest the Palestinian genocide. Like you're not allowed to do it. You're not allowed to talk about it. Um, so, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's very good that the other African nations are finally saying like, fuck off. Um, and it gives us like a, a better sort of like understanding of, um, you know, the struggles of the African people. I think like, um, I don't know if you have an opinion on this, uh, Anansi, but like, I think like, uh, you know, seeing a, a lot more like African nations come together, uh, and standing together and, and saying like, yo, listen, you know, we want to govern ourselves. We, we want a better life for the African people. We want, uh, you know, socialist reforms. We want, you know, left-leaning reforms and stuff like that. Um, it's got to be one of the more exciting things that's happening, I think, at the moment, because, uh, you know, obviously there's the, I, I can't remember the, the exact name, but there's like the Council of African Nations that are sort of coming together and saying like, no, you've got you've to let France govern you still or something, or you've got to like give concessions to France and stuff. And there's this like block of four or five nations that are saying, yeah, we're not doing that. We're not doing that, and we're going to fight you if you try and make us do that. So, um, I yeah. think, like, yeah, go ahead. Sorry. Oh no, uh, um, go ahead, go ahead. I'm sorry, I didn't. No, I was, I was just saying. I think it's, I think it's got to be like one of the more like exciting things to come, uh, you know, out of like news from the imperial periphery. Yeah. No. Yeah. So it, it, it definitely is, and um, I know, like in in the past, when things like this have been have been done, like um, like during Haile Selassie's regime, there was kind of a similar. A similar attempt attempt going on with the um, AOU, the African the African Union, and um, Haile Selassie was actually kind of on the on the right wing end of this split between what was called the Monrovia Block and the Casablanca Block, which basically the Monrovia Block was like um, I can't remember all the nations that were in it, but I know Haile Selassie, Ethiopia was um, was part of it, and they were kind of like an anti communist wing within Africa that was kind of helping to push back on some of the the things like Thomas Sankara and like other, you know, Ethiopians, other African communists were doing at the time to try and further the cause of, of liberation and further, you know, the cause of anti-imperialism in Africa. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. It's, yeah, it's, it's a real, like, it, it makes, it makes a lot of sense because when you learn about like Burkina Faso and, uh, uh, 
Thomas Sankara, like, you know, that whole, like, yeah, like the betrayal and like the, the, the pushback from all the other African nations that, that, that he got was just like so horrific. And, um, yeah, I mean, I don't know if like, I don't think Haile Selassie was like, was he assassinated or I don't know, like, uh, okay. So, <laughs> <laughs> cause it just says he died in prison. It's, it's actually very funny. It's actually okay. a, it's a very funny story. I did I, I didn't talk about this in the actual two hour video, but I made a little small like ten minute video afterward where I kind of go off on this tangent because yeah, like yeah. it would have been very totally inconsistent to talk about what happens to him after he dies to talk about the rest of the video because right. it's just it's, it's inherently very comedic. So basically, basically when the military deposes Haile Selassie, they keep him um in uh, like in a house arrest at the palace for a while before they decide to to move him to to uh another another jail another place where they're holding him and basically at this point he's like at, for one at this point he's like 80 something he's like 81 he's old as balls and he's he's like there are some allegations that he wasn't even really like um what's the word like he was he was starting to kind of go senile so he wasn't right. even, like they they like I read one report that said like at the time that he was under house arrest he didn't even know that a revolution had happened and he thought everything was just normal. But, <laughs> um, yeah, so around that time he also um he ends up having prostate surgery um or whatever and then afterwards he's um he's moved to the other facility where he's being held. And now some people allege that he was strangled in his cell by the dirge and they killed him. And then others allege that he he died of complications. The, the dirge claimed that he he died of complications to because of his surgery. Um, okay. It's also possible he just died because he was old as hell. Um, yeah. That he just like died in, in his cell like randomly. And the thing is, people will claim that the dirge um, killed him. But he, but like I, I don't think they did it. And like I'm not a dirge apologist at all. They suck for a lot of reasons. But here's the reason why I don't think they did it. Because just me, if I were, if I were Mengistu, if I were like the leader, one of the leaders of the dirge at the time, and I killed Hila Selassie, there is no way in hell I wouldn't tell everyone. That's the right. thing. Like, yeah. Why would you not? Why would you not claim that claim? They would boast. It doesn't make sense. And that's not even getting the fact that, like, the forensic evidence on his bones showed that he wasn't strangled to death, or at least that's what what's been said. That like, there's no evidence that he was like forcibly killed in any way on his. Bones. Also, they wouldn't. They wouldn't strangle him. They would shoot him. Like, surely they would like do. There's got to be other ways to do that. Right. And then right. he was he was old, he was old as hell. He had just had had surgery had uh, like life uh, threatening surgery, and he was like already he was already senile. Like it's not unreasonable that he just died. Yeah. But like, what's funny? What's funny is what they do with his body after he dies because they. I don't know what I don't know what their beef with this man was, but Mengist basically has them encase his bones in a block of concrete, and then they use that specific block of concrete as the block of concrete under the uh, the office toilet. Um, <laughs> yeah, I'm not lying. I'm not lying. And he's there. He's there. Um, being being shat on every day. Um, for like 20 years before they finally find him. Holy shit! They're like, oh crap. I think in like the early sometime in the early two thousands, they um they finally find his his body, like on accident, and then they they give him a formal burial. But yeah, they I, I it's it's a crazy story. It's a crazy story. <laughs> yeah. It's like that's so extreme. That's oh, yeah. so <laughs> unbelievable. Wow. Oh my gosh. Well, 
we've made it we got to the uh, uh, uh the questions part mm. like that's where we're at now we're at the bit where the chat asks questions who wants to ask the first one i'll do it okay this is from stealth intel um how did the student council groups deal with the lead up to the ousting such as public forum or internal meetings yeah so the the build up to the actual moment of the revolution was like a very it was a very contentious moment among the students um because another one of the things that was kind of splitting them was some of how how they were reacting to the building tensions this is in like um this is in like 1972 and stuff that some of the some of the students are like we're going to form or armed organizations right now like the like in like in like 1972 like the early 1970s there are students who are like hijacking planes to to fly to Air to Eritrea to like um to receive training and stuff or like fly to other countries to get um training and weapons and stuff so they can come back and you know start the revolution in Ethiopia the EPRP is one of the first groups to really jump on this and they're one of the they're one of the first groups of students to actually successfully pull off a plane hijacking and like they go to Algiers to get um training and stuff and that's when they like they have interactions with like um Palestinian um liberation front and all these different groups so some of the students, and this is particularly where some of the divide between EPRP and Mamasan comes in, because um, Haile Fida and his organization, Haile Fida's personal view is that the revolution isn't going to take place for like 25 years. He's like, yeah, we're not going to we're not going to get the actual revolution for another 25 years. And he's like, he's like really on that wave. And then um, the EPRP and their people, they're like, no, it's going to happen like any day now. Like we need to start forming armed organizations now. We need to we need to at this like. We need to straight, like, not even, um, pun, no pun intended, like, we need to graduate from student um, movement to, like, actual political party with, like, with teeth and, like, you know, the ability to commit arms, like, acts of armed violence and stuff on, on on behalf of our political project and that sort of thing. So the the reaction is very, is very split. Um, and then when the revolutionary, like, when the revolution actually happens, Haile Fida, like, he basically moves, immediately moves to, um, back to Ethiopia. Cause he's, he's staying, I think he's staying in either, I think he's staying in Europe at this point. Cause he's one of the leaders of the Ethiopian student union in Europe. But, um, he comes back to Ethiopia and, like, opens a, a, a bookstore as, like, a front for, um, the all Ethiopian socialist movement and starts, like, starts working toward furthering the revolution. So he's, like, he's, He's him and his wing. They're like off by a lot on when the revolution's actually going to take place. But that's kind of how they're all reacting as the tensions are building. Okay, cool. cool. All right. Well, so we got another one here. There's an interesting one from Yucca Mountain Johnny. What external imperial pressures were acting in opposition to the revolution? Any particular Western corporations or governments working at destabilization? Um, this is actually a pretty interesting, interesting topic. So the, one of the only real avenues at this point is, um, so there's the, uh, CELU, the, um, which is the, um, main Ethiopian labor union at this point. And, um, at the point, at the buildup of the revolution, this is something, this is, um, something that's kind of created, created by like U.S. foreign interference to kind of have like a, a stable hand on the Ethiopian labor movement. But when when the Ethiopian revolution starts to build up and Ethiopian uh, people from the student movement start to join that union, they they work to radicalize it. And then that union becomes a very important part of, you know, furthering the revolution once it starts. But at this point that the revolution is happening, the U.S. is very heavily involved in Vietnam and it's not going well. 
And um, there's really not a lot of, wouldn't be a lot of public support for a lot of U.S. intervention in Ethiopia. So while they're keeping tabs on the situation, the U.S. is actually very uncharacteristically, uncharacteristically not getting super involved in what's going on. Um, once they're once their their labor unions are kind of pushed pushed out, um, and they're actually until until I think 1978, um, I think until 1978, the U.S. is actually still technically supplying the dirge with military support um because they i they just like i i'm it's it's weird it's it's weird i i feel like i feel like it's kind of the dirge kind of takes power and then they're getting the support and they're just like just just don't tell them they're still giving us this but um (laughs) just keep catching the chicks (laughs) yeah and and, and megitsu just basically keeps that support until he knows he can get support from the soviet union and then he like kind of him and the, the u.s and ethiopia kind of slowly start to disassociate from each other like the U.S. kind of, kind of quietly and unceremoniously stops sending military aid around 1978, as the as Min is like solidifying his connections with the Soviet Union. Okay, interesting. interesting. So, uh, just Johnny asks, don't know if it was covered, but what remained the biggest struggle post-revolution, whether external sanctions or internal problems? Definitely internal problems. I think one of the big struggles um, post-revolution. Is that like one of the central questions of the revolution wasn't answered, answered, which is the national question. You know, they the whole point was to find a way for these different nations to equitably exist um, around each other, and that question still hasn't really been hasn't fully been answered. There's still struggles um, along that along that line, um, and I feel like I feel like the the splits that de- that devolved and opened up over that question are I think one of the things that caused the revolution to kind of go in the direction it did, especially. Um, Especially with you know moments like Haile Fida choosing choosing to support the dirge and to walk out on on unification talks between the two the two main student organizations, I think was one of the one of the major damning moments of the revolution. Cool, uh, Kara, do you want to do the last one? Yes, um, this one last one is from it's it is me, Crystal. Um, how do you find and evaluate reliable information sources when you research topics like this, where many of the most available or prominent sources have a vested interest in falsifying or obfuscating what actually happened? Obfuscating, excuse me, I always say that word wrong. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I, I mean, one of the things that was important to me was trying to find primary sources. Um, there are like, they're, they're scattered, they're very scattered across the internet, but like they're... Um, one of the books that I read is called The Quest for Socialist Utopia by um, a historian named Baru Zawadi. He um, was actually part of the student movement. So his account of, of the revolution and everything was very important for my research. Um, I found um, a lot of articles and stuff online that were written directly by people who were involved in the student movement. Um, I found I found like a, a, a YouTube channel that um, I linked it, I linked them in the video because they were their channel was extremely helpful. But they had like old footage of the revolution, like actual like students marching, like meetings and stuff with the dirge. Press cool. pieces. Like they had just a, a whole archive of just video of the video it was I, I was so happy when i found it i almost cried it was amazing <laughs> it's amazing it's just like a lot of just like old, like videos from random youtube accounts of someone who like who like screen recorded something they had on a videotape on their phone just to post on youtube and it's like it's like family video of the revolution and stuff i had oh, that rules. I had a lot of help from ethiopian comrades um who you know helped me translate things and helped uh 
helped me to understand things like that was um a really big a really big help that I received um I also uh, one of the books I read was called um what was it called um it was called it's called like Ho Chi Minh like Che Guevara um by a man named Ian, Ian Scott Horst um and his account of the revolution was also very helpful and he's not like Ethiopian but his account of the revolution still was pretty good um, but yeah, so it was a, it was an effort of trying to, of getting information from a lot of different places as directly to the source as I possibly could. That's so cool. in, in, awesome. interestingly on that, on the sources, um, you didn't reference any of, uh, Comrade Sene Licker's, uh, book on the Ethiopian revolution, uh, <laughs> <laughs> which is, which is the main thing that is, uh, referenced as a source in the Wikipedia article, which is nowhere near uh, as, uh, <laughs> definitely not nearly as complete. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So yeah, it's very funny. I'm like, I, I've been just like sort of skim reading a little bit of this as, as, uh, the episode has been going on, but it's like, yeah, there's definitely some like interesting things uh that sine talked about uh anyway um yeah really really awesome anansi thank you so much uh, as as you probably remember from the last time that you came on the show we love to give our little nerds our, our viewers l- listeners uh twitch chatters all watching listening at home uh some homework at the end of every show have you considered the potential homework for this episode Yes, I have considered the potential homework for this episode, and I have I have two things. I have two pieces of homework for people. Okay. Um, one is uh, join a local mutual aid group. If there's a mutual aid group in your area, join them and help do mutual aid. Get involved in your community and get in- involved in helping other people. And if there's not one of those groups in your area, then your job is to start one with your friends. Get some friends that you trust together and start that start that organizing and, you know, try to fill that niche in your community. And also... Yeah. Sorry, go on, Anansi. What are you going to say? Oh, the last thing, just pet a cat. Pet a cat! <laughs> nice, yeah. nice. Awesome. It's actually my cat's so birthday today, so that's like oh. great homework. Oh. Dee's birthday. Oh, birthday. Yeah. <laughs> yep so uh i'll definitely i'll definitely get some homework and let hell yeah um so anansi uh tell us where everyone can find you plug all your stuff uh yeah you can find me on youtube my youtube channel's name is obviously anansi's library um i'm also uh, uh i'm also on twitter my twitter is um uh, or x whatever it's called now we're mis we're mis uh gendering twitter but um <laughs> My my Twitter is uh, at localpunkanansi, um, and then I also am on, on uh, Instagram and TikTok, also just as Anansi's library. Um, I'm easy to find. Um, yeah. Uh, also, I have a Patreon where I I post like the scripts to my videos before I post them, like the audio tracks before they get posted. I also post like poetry that I write and um, short stories and stuff like that there. So yeah, um, yeah. Thank you. Excellent. Please, 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 please go and support Anansi uh, wherever you can find him. Uh, And yeah, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been a really informative, really awesome episode. Uh, Yeah, I look forward to having you back at some point. Hell yeah. Thank you for having me. I look forward to coming back. No worries. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. See you later. Uh, Fantastic. Thank you, everyone, for being here and listening to the show today. Uh, we got a little thing to do for you now. 
Oh, what is it? Everyone knows it's time for the Patreon uh, call out time. Give us money hour. Uh, yeah. What? A full what? hour of it. <laughs> <laughs> A whole massive hour of us just telling you why you should give us money. Uh, but we are, uh, in all seriousness, really, really close uh, to achieving our goal. Uh, our goal, I believe, mm. is $1,100 a month or something like that. Yeah. Uh, but we're super, super close to getting that. Uh, as Conrad was telling me in my ear earlier, we're at $950. So, so close. What would, what would that be if we could do some uh, quick maths to reference a dead meme? Um, two do- two dollars a month. If we if we had like f- seventy five people who who donated two pound or or two dollars or three dollars fifty uh, New Zealand dollars a month, yeah. that would get us to our goal. Um, if we're also we trying had... to raise money for uh, Sophie to come out to America next month, but uh, yes, I don't know if we're going to be able to make that deadline. But if there's any people that were sitting on some cash and they would like us to raise. Uh, a few more thousand. <laughs> that, would be, <laughs> that would be super. <laughs> yeah, get it done. Get it. Yeah. Get, get it donated. Um, but yeah. Anyway, speaking of the, speaking of the tears, let's go through the tears first. Anyway, uh, two pound a month. Uh, oh, by the way, it's patreon.com forward slash red underscore planet. In case you didn't know, uh, but you can support us from as little as two pound a month, two dollars a month, three dollars fifty uh, New Zealand dollars a month. Uh, get started with your support for Red Planet by becoming a sprite. Benefits include the sacred and forbidden knowledge that you're helping the Red Planet team, early access to vods, and access to the Red Planet Discord. Wow, what amazing amount of benefits! Uh, but Kara, what's the next one? It's goblin mode. Can you believe it? Whoa! A, we, you can actually go goblin mode for real. You There's can a have goblin? it. Yeah, you can become a goblin for as little as ten dollars a month or eight pound fifty. Whoa! Whoa! And then you got it right. New Zealand, something in New Zealand. <laughs> it's on seventeen dollars and fifty cents. Seventeen uh, plus GST. Yeah. Plus GST. Mm-hmm. Everyone loves a goblin. We all get a little goblin mode from time to time. Complete your gobology by going goblin mode with everything from Sprite mode and a pack of cool Red Planet stickers for you to stick in legal places and only in places like that and access to the exclusive Red Planet Discord hangouts. Wow, we have amazing hangouts and uh, maybe there might be a hangout coming up soon where me and Sophie, Sophie came up to, to visit me uh, a week ago and we were watching the the um, awful, um, what's it called, conspiracy YouTube video Zeitgeist uh, and we were thinking about oh, watching, yeah. yeah, not only Zeitgeist but Zeitgeist Addendum where they correct Whoa. all the lies that they say in, <laughs> in Zeitgeist. <laughs> they do, does it, do they make it any better though or? Uh, I don't know. I, I, I've not seen Zeitgeist Addendum, but I do know that they literally go through like each bit and be like, yes, we actually referenced a Nazi here, uh, which is not good and stuff like that. (laughs) Yes. Because it's like, it was, I remember when it came out, it was huge. It was like one of those things that, 
you download, you know, a bunch of friends, you'd be like, I got this documentary off the internet and we're going to like, <laughs> you know, learn the real truth. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. Like, like, yeah, I said, that sounds uh, like a good one. I said, I did uh, mention, I'll give you a little sneak peek of uh, the, the next limited hangout, but I did mention that at the point in my life when I watched Zeitgeist, it was also the point in my life where I smoked weed through a light bulb. So yeah, 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 yeah. if you want to know about my material conditions, that's what they were. <laughs> Also, speaking of limited hangouts, if you uh, subscribe to any of our tiers, any of our tiers, you get access to this super fun, awesome podcast that we're making, which is basically about tons of conspiracy shit. It's really fun. I was part of an episode about the Democrats. I think Mule was part of an episode about... 9-11 and yeah, yeah. Well, you were also technically part of that episode but you'll have to tune in and listen to find out why <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. we got some more coming up um, yeah it's super fun the, the format is basically um one of us that knows about a conspiracy theory explaining it to the others or well that's like the idea or whatever so um i think yeah it's like yeah the context and everything around it that kind of led to the emergence of like these theories um i can't remember what it was so has one for me um coming up soon yeah 15 minute cities actually that's what we're gonna do and um and i've i've got some ideas for some for these guys too so we'll see um but yeah anyway the next the next tier in the patreon beast mode $34.50 $34.50 New Zealand a month. What's that? That's like 20, 20 bucks American. Probably. Yeah. Yeah, 20 American. About probably about that in pounds, right? Or is it like 18, 50 17. Or yeah. Oh, yeah. Around there, roughly, you know, <laughs> um, per month. And uh, holy shit, are you actually going to go beast mode? Well, if you do, we can offer you all of that stuff from the lower tiers, but also um, like pin badges. And, uh, yeah, little pin badges you can wear. Excellent. Your excellent new Red Planet pin badge literally everywhere. It's completely cool and good to do. Um, and, yeah, obviously access to all the Hangouts, the podcasts, stickers, all of that stuff from the lower tiers. And then um, one more tier on top of that. And so we were saying before it would take – what, like 75 people doing sprite mode to get us to our goal? Yeah. If we have a one, like, what, is it like one person from the next tier? Or, or is two, it... one or two, 1.5, yeah. Okay, so 1.5, so, you know, round it up, if two of you, <laughs> two people go to um the next tier, which is... Kira? Sicko mode. Oh, Kira. Okay, yeah. Sicko mode. Yeah. <laughs> if you support then, us this um, much. Yeah. Oh, are we doing this? Are we doing the whole thing? Yeah. Sure. If you support us this much, we can only really reasonably offer you all of the stuff from the lower tiers, plus a very special thank you message at the end of every stream. Show. So thank you, JBP, oh, yeah. Narlon Starfire, Queen Pib, and Cassie Tastrophe. Hell yeah. Thanks, Whoa. Cassie. Thank you, we Cassie. Got a new, we got a new sicko. A I new, new sicko. Incredible. <laughs> Sick. Absolutely fucked in the head, the lot of you. But we Messed love you. up. Messed, Messed up. up. So the fucked. Mm. Um... <laughs> 
We also have merch. Don't forget, yeah, you can do. go over to mercenarycreative.com and you can get hold of the Red Planet Queer Existence is Resistance shirt. Uh, if you're watching us right now live or on YouTube, you'll be able to see how beautiful you could maybe almost get to looking like because no one will be quite as beautiful as Sophie from Mars. Um, but you could get there almost close if you get our Queer Existence is Resistance shirt. Uh, you can also get the tote bag, uh, which is phenomenal. And uh, yeah, very affordable plus it helps the show get over there get it done get it all done that's it but what if i was watching red planet and i thought you know that tim fella he brought up some amazing points i'd like to hear some more stuff from him uh what has he got to offer where can i do that tim well you can you can find me here on twitch as dream conquest wait where am i no, Conquest of Dread on Twitch. Your Conquest yeah. of Dread on Twitch. Yeah, yeah. Conquest <laughs> of Dread on Twitch and YouTube. Um, Dread Conquest on Twitter and um, and Blue Sky, the other one. So, um, yeah, you can find me there. Um, I haven't really had much time to stream or anything lately because the last month has been a blur for me. But um, I do, I do want to get back into it sometime soon. Um, maybe streaming some Baldur's Gate. I definitely want to stream. Um, coming up to Halloween, I want to stream some puppet combo games. If anyone is familiar with puppet combo, yes, they do like low-fi PS One era looking horror games inspired by like VHS kind of slasher era stuff. They're really, really good. I've done a bunch on stream before and they're just like, just, yeah, they're great. They're such a cool vibe, but very like Halloween-y. So that's, that's, that's roughly on the agenda. Um, but what is on the agenda for, for young Kira? Where can we find more about her? Well, uh, I've been playing a lot of Baldur's Gate 3 on my channel. Uh, we've been covering some news. I'm getting a little bit back into that because of everything happening is just it's, it's just a lot so but uh for most of the streams we've been also trying to allow I, i've been trying to create a place where people can kind of like check out of that for a little bit with hmm. like-minded people so you don't have to be like on edge or anything um so we've been playing a lot of Baldur's gate 3 and um yeah i've been really having a good time been having my elf ears wear my elf ears every every day too because that feels more me when I I can't wear them to Red Planet. I don't know if Red Planet's ready for elf ears, but but I'm what definitely kind of, wearing them. What kind of show would we be if we didn't allow elf ears? You can wear elf ears. What the hell? Really? Maybe I'll wear elf ears. Extremely ready for that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um. But yeah, you can also check out my socials, Winky Face. Um. I am a sex worker, and I have socials. So um, you can find all my links in my link tree. It's linktra.ee slash Kira Chats. Basically. All the websites I'm on are under Kira Chat, so just check me out there. Um, but yeah, I'll be streaming tomorrow. And also, I just wanted to say that if you subscribe, become a member uh, uh, on our Patreon, if you do it during my stream on my on Twitch.tv slash Kira Chats, you will get an on-screen alert and one of eight DJ Mule very Britophobic <laughs> little statements will pop up little audio clips oh, eight? Is that yeah no i use every single one i know one of them you're like don't use this one but i use that one anyway <laughs> <laughs> so 
So Amazing. yeah, uh, make sure if, if you if you want that, if you want that energy in your life, you want the on-screen Britophobic DJ Mule and recognition, uh, check me out at any of my any day that I'm streaming. I stream every single day except for Tuesdays and Wednesdays at twitch.tv slash chats. And then you can uh you can have that in your life. But speaking of my 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 good friend Mule, Mule, where can I find you? This <laughs> is a joke. <laughs> I did them all as a joke. I yeah, no, they're real. I didn't it's, think she did it, something. It got, it got us a sickle. That's incredible. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. <laughs> Sorry, that's just really fucked me up. Um, <laughs> okay. Yeah, me. Oh, where can, where, where can you find more of me? Well, uh, I just, I just, I just released a new YouTube video, uh, which is probably getting buried by the algorithm because it contains footage of the incredibly based Kurdish women's protection units who defeated ISIS. Uh, because I use that as a kind of gotcha when I'm talking about a transphobe who basically says, uh, women in the military would never be an all-male military but obviously there's many examples of that not being the case so unfortunately uh that's getting buried in the algorithm but if you search it if you go to my channel uh, youtube.com forward slash c forward slash dj m-u-e-l you will find it there um it's called tiktok live is the worst and uh it really is the worst uh, if you've ever been on tiktok if you've seen any of the lives that come up uh they just display some of the worst bigoted piece of shits i've ever seen in my life so uh i do a bit of a video talking about that Lots of people who've watched it say it's very good. So uh, go ahead and uh, uh, see for yourself if it's very good. YouTube.com forward slash C forward slash DJ M-U-E-L. You could also find me with that username uh, on various different platforms like Patreon. Uh, All of my YouTube videos, all my content is made possible by my Patreon supporters and by my Twitch uh, 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 community as well. And you can also find me on twitch.tv forward slash DJ Mule. Uh, and I'm also on Blue Sky. Uh, it's bsky.social.app at DJ M-U-E-L. I don't even know what it is, what the, the weird app is. You're DJ Mule.bsky.social. Yes, right? probably. I guess so. I don't know. I'm pretty sure if you just Google DJ Mule, I'll yeah. show up. Yeah, uh, not Google. Search for it on on Blue Sky. Uh, but if there's anything that I've forgotten to tell you about, go to linktree.ee forward slash DJMUEL. You'll find all my stuff there. Um, speaking of which, you can also find our absent co-host, Sophie from Mars's stuff on her linktree, which is linktree.ee forward slash Sophie from Mars. She's on YouTube. She's on Patreon. She's on Instagram. She's on fucking everything. So you should go and follow her all over there as well um but yeah amazing thanks for being here thanks for listening thanks for watching thanks for supporting us and, especially uh, free palestine don't forget to free palestine mm-hmm. uh, do that on your way out do it on your <laughs> way out see you later thanks for listening to this episode of red planet if you enjoyed the show leave a five-star review on apple podcasts and tell all your comrades about it Find more on the show, including where to watch live at redplanetshow.com. Follow us on Twitter and TikTok at red underscore planet underscore TV. And there's even more at our Patreon, patreon.com slash red underscore planet. Our music is by Jasper Byrne. Red Planet is produced by Conrad Zimmerman in association with Mercenary Creative. See you next week.